55. Of course, we are not live on YouTube. If you're watching this on YouTube, it was uh, uploaded about a week later because I am in YouTube jail yet again, uh, doing a seven day stint this time. I'm not really sure for what because it was said it was disinformation and I could guess. But then when I upload this video later, I guess I'll get banned for disinformation again. So I won't. Anyway, we are live on Rumble today, and once I get Joel Riles in the uh, room, I will jump over on the other screen uh, onto Rumble and make sure I can monitor your comments there. If you're on Twitch, I will see your comments in the back office and we can answer them. And if you're on Facebook, I'll put it this way. I should, but often don't see your comments. So if you want to interact with us today, jump over onto, well, of course, if you're not, I guess if you're on one of the other feeds, yeah, jump over to Rumble or jump over to Twitch, and we'll be able to communicate with you guys. Anyway, we'll have on Joel in just a minute. We're going to be talking about following your passion. Joel, of course, is the force behind Fortress Canine. I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit today. But we want to talk more about, you know, basically having your entire life ripped to shit. Right when you thought you were going to start living the way that you chose to live, and then rebuilding it and making it better than ever in just a few years. I know a lot of people that have done this, but Joel is one of my favorite people that has, and we'll have him on in just a moment to talk about that. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day today. Sponsor of the day number one today is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is literally the only sponsor I have that pays me no money because they don't have to pay me money. They pay with pay me with meat. I get a giant box of meat right to my front gate every month, and you can too. I'm really partial to their ribeyes and their New York strips. I also really love their wild seafood, their pastured pork and poultry. And there's just tons of deals that I've been able over years get exclusively for MSB members as well. Anyway, check them out today. And remember, if you are an MSB member, $10 off every single month on an, on an annual subscription. That's $120 a year on my $50 membership just from that one supporting vendor. And if you're like, I don't need a box every month. You can do it every other month and you can pause it anytime you want. Anyway, next up today... Let's talk about JM Bullion. Guys, I know I'm always on you about stacking Bitcoin. That doesn't mean that I'm not about stacking silver and gold, and especially silver or AKA poor man's gold. You know, I have been approached over the years by some of the larger silver houses, Monex for one, Lear Capital for another. And I've always said no to them. One, because I have a silver and gold sponsor. But you know, the real reason is Michael Whitmire is the uh, president of Jam Bullion. I have his personal email address. If there's ever a problem, I can email him directly and get it fixed for you. You know what, you know what Lear Capital told me when I said, hey, I need to be able to talk to like president, C-level officer, somebody like that if there's a problem? They said no. They said, no. you know what Monix told me? They didn't even respond. This is why I've been loyal with these guys now for over a decade. Check them out, jambullion.com. With that, let's go ahead and uh, get our special guest on the stream with us, Joel Riles. Joel, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. It's always great to be here. Start out for people that maybe have never heard from you before, maybe tune in today for the first time with you. Know, who and what is the Joel Riles? Uh, what, what's your background prior to getting into training protection dogs? 
Yeah, so um, I was an Army officer for um, about 12 years active duty. I had about three years in the National Guard and Reserve, um, you know, a little bit. So I did my first four years uh, active, and then I was like, hey, I want to go. I wanted to go Special Forces. And um, in the Army, when you're on active duty as an officer, you have to submit a packet first. You don't just get to go, uh, hey, I want to go to SFAS, and they send you. Yeah. And uh, that's the selection uh, course for Special Forces. And so – I submitted my packet and um, me and my boss, my bosses and me have always had a love hate relationship in the army. Like they, they love that. I always get the work done that needs to be done, but they hate that. I tell them no all the time. And they're like, <laughs> you're going to do this. And I'm like, no, sir, we're not going to do that. And they yeah. yell at me and, and I just, you know, would take care of my soldiers as best I could. And, um, and so the, the only way for me to get into special forces at that point was to go into the national guard. And they had a kind of a whole different approach. You would go into what they call the non-qualified personnel um, part of the unit. And then if you, if you did well there, then they would send you to SFAS. So I was uh, attempting to do that. So I was in the national guard during that time frame, And it was right during the 2007, 2008, uh, lead up for the, uh, housing crisis and all that kind of stuff. And we just could not afford to get a house. I was, uh, I had a job as a sheriff's officer in Hillsborough County. And, um, and I was just looking at my pay and looking at what they wanted for like a quarter acre with a dilapidated trailer on it and going, there's no way I can afford that. So we ultimately uh, resubmitted my packet to go back on active duty. And, uh, and then I finished up my, my time there. And um, but as I was doing that, I always wanted to do the dogs. It just kept coming up. Uh, after my first overseas deployment, I came back and my now ex-wife was like, hey, I, I got it. Deployments are a part of life in the Army. Uh, but when you're gone, I want a protection dog here at the house. So, um, you know, people often ask me, did you handle dogs in the army? And I'm like, well, I handled dogs while I was in the army, but not for the army. And, uh, and so, uh, we found a place up in Canada. Um, and, and honestly, the only reason we went with them, I'm so glad it worked out this way, but the only reason we went with them initially was because for the same price as getting a puppy from most of the places that were into Schutzen and some of these other sports, um, I could get a puppy in a week of training with them. And uh, so we bought our puppy from them. We went up. I did my first week of training. And uh, there's some interesting stories. If you want to get into those later, people are like, you're insane. I'm like, well, I was in my mid-20s. Of course I was insane. I was willing to do any kind of crazy stuff. And I was interested in going to special forces. So I just thought everything we were doing was fun. And um, And so we got our dog. We came back. And that just kind of started off my whole obsession with the dogs. And, uh, and then as I was going through, I, I would, you know, start getting puppies. I would start running, uh, obedience classes. And so I kind of got used to starting a business over and over and over again, because as you know, in the army, you either PCS or deploy PCS is permanent change of station. That basically moves, means they move you somewhere else. Right. And so I would be, uh, I'd, I'd get some clients. We'd be having classes on maybe the weekend or something like that. And then you deploy to Iraq or you deploy to Bogota or something like that. And, uh, and so then I'd come home and of course the people that I was training with, they've either moved themselves or they found another trainer or whatever. And so we would start from scratch again. And so I did that numerous times and it just eventually got to the point where, um, the needs of the army and the needs of Joel and his family got too far separated. And I just said, all right, guys, like no hard feelings. I really did enjoy my time in the military. Uh, if I'd been single, I probably would have stayed in, but we just decided, you know, okay, I'm done. I'm moving on with my life. Um, got out and, uh, did, I did some reserve time and I did a few other things and, and we can talk about that a little bit later when we kind of get into the transition process. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it always seems like, 
the, the two options are either, you know, start a side hustle and build it up slow or burn the, the ships and jump all in full time. And I kind of had a hybrid approach uh, to what happened. And um, my ex-wife was, you know, she was very risk averse. And I'm like the person who's like, jump off the bridge and it'll be OK. All right, let's do it. And, you know, <laughs> don't even ask how deep the water is. Right. And uh, and so I, I would take these risks and we would just do things. And so there was a little bit of craziness for about two years after we got out of active duty. And uh, ultimately, the business went full time. And I'm sure we'll get into some of the exciting yeah. things that happened in between then. But that's how I, I ultimately got into doing Fortress Canine as a full time business. So I know quite a few people in this community who have going to jail in their background. And yeah. it's a very disruptive experience. And it completely derails their life. And I know that happened to you. And you're among about three in particular that I know that I feel really got railroaded. It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. It wasn't, oh, I did a bad thing and I shouldn't have. It was, there's an opportunity here to get this guy, so we're going to get this guy. Right. But everyone I know like that in this community is doing exactly what you are right now, running a successful business. Can you talk about what happened and how you were able to stick to your commitment and focus on building what you really wanted in your life as you've done, you know, after the fact, because there's a period of time in there where you didn't get to make a choice, but you did get to make a choice in the way you thought and the way you planned for your future. Yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons people hesitate to, uh, to make any kind of big change and whether that's a, I believe a certain thing and now somebody's challenging my belief or I want to, you know, I'm, I'm in a job I don't like and I really would like to do this other thing, but I'm not going to you know, pursue it full heartedly is they're afraid of losing what they do have. And, uh, and one of the huge, huge blessings of having everything ripped away is that it's like, well, not afraid of losing it anymore because it was all taken. Yeah. And uh, and so the kind of that that almost that big hook that's in you that's holding you back is just ripped out. And it's like, OK, there's there's nothing left but to just go and do the thing you wanted to do. So the, the short story of what happened was um, we had when I was uh, leaving my last full time job. So uh, I'll real briefly kind of go over the, the hybrid approach that, that I ended up taking. So the, um, you know, you got the, the burn the bridges or the, the start slow and build it up until you can, you know, make the transition over to full time. Well, what I did was, um, I was working, you know, I was active duty army. I got out the second time and I went into AGR, which is active guard and reserve. Basically what that means is you're assigned to either the national guard or the reserves, but you're full time. You're getting all your full pay. You're getting all your full benefits. Um, and all that kind of stuff, but you work with either a National Guard unit or a reserve unit. And so I did that in Wyoming, and um, and it, being an officer in the Army is like being a, a middle to upper management person in a company. Um, you're kind of like salaried. Uh, they can call you in at any time. Um, if there's a thing that needs to be done, you're working late whether you want to or not. And um, And I was like, okay, so – all of the spare time, the free time that I should have to try and get this business built up on the side is being sucked out by these. Con and I, I'd recently gotten, quote unquote, promoted. So I was a major. I was in 04 okay. and um, and I got a, put, placed in an 06 position. 
So if I wanted to make the army a career full time and I wanted to just commit all my time to this, I probably could have been at least an 06, maybe even a general officer in, in the army. But that I'm I'm not a political person. That was never going to work out anyway. And I knew and that wasn't really what I wanted to do. So what I decided to do was to get a job with a as a security officer which also had some connection to what I was already doing with the dogs and everything. I'd already had some law enforcement experience. And so it, the pay was about half of what I was making, but it was essentially a nine to five job. Okay. And I actually ended up getting the, the mid shift, which was ideal for me because I would show up, I would close up. We, we were at a theme park. It was actually the, the life-size Noah's Ark that they built. And, um, and so I was there while they were still under construction. And so I would show up. I would make sure that the people that needed to leave had all left. I would kind of do a walk around and make sure everything was secure. And then I basically had six hours of nothing. So I was able to use that time to do things like get the website, you know, built up the way that it needed to and get some admin work done. Then I would come home. I would sleep for four hours. I would get up. I would train dogs. I would get dressed and I'd go back to work. But I knew that when I show up at work, I clock in. And when I clock out, I'm done. Nobody's calling me. Right. Unless I like already prearranged to work some overtime or something. And I, and I was just like not interested in overtime because I can make more money doing my side hustle than you can pay me for overtime. And uh, so I did that for a little bit. So rather than burning the ships, I said, let me downgrade in my job where the, the side hustle that I'm running covers the difference in the money. And then when I can commit more time to that, because I'm, all my time's not being sucked out of me, then I can build it up to where it can support us full time and then walk away from the job. And um, and so I did that. But as I was walking away from the job, my ex-wife kind of had as much stress as she could have or whatever her r- rationale for walking away is. And um, and she said, I'm done, separated, took the kids to her sisters. And I'm there basically running the business by myself. But one of our sons had some medical needs and he was being treated down in Florida. We were living in Kentucky. And so he um we were going down there like once a month and we ultimately decided, you know, it's a lot cheaper if we just sell this place and buy a place in Florida. Sure. So we moved down to Florida. I really hadn't even been at the house. I think I'd been there for like two days. Um, and, and it was like a, from one trip in reset and, and head back out on another trip. So I'm in Mississippi while the family's moved down to Florida now training a law enforcement agency to integrate a canine uh, dog into a SWAT team. And the, the training ends and we're getting ready to, to load up and head back home. And the sheriff, of that department calls me in and says, Hey, I need you to come in and see me. So I come in and he's like, uh, how's your marriage going? And I was like, uh, well, um, it's like a little rocky right now, but I think we're going to try and work it out and blah, blah, blah. He's like, I don't think your wife wants to work it out. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And he goes, well, she called the local law enforcement, told them that you had a bomb and you were going to try and blow people up. And I was like, well, that's interesting. He's like, yeah, there's a warrant for your arrest out. So now it actually worked out decent that it was there with them because I got like my own cell and just hung yeah. out until the transport guys came and got me and blah, blah, blah. But what ultimately happened was she took my uh, canine explosive scent that we were using to, to train the dogs for explosive detection, took a picture of it, sent it to uh, somebody in law enforcement, and then – uh, you know, they put a warrant out for the arrest. Now, for those who don't know much about explosives, you need about seven components to make the actual explosive go boom. Yeah. And um, and so I had one of them. Right. But because I had some firecrackers that we would use for training the dogs for concussions and things. Oh, well, you could stick a firecracker in it and make it blow up. Well, that's kind of the idiocy of people in like the criminal justice system, because they thought that literally. And I had to bring a Navy SEAL buddy in to testify on my behalf 
to say, hey, he did not have what he needs. And they were like, yeah. but he had M80 firecrackers. He was like, you could put an M80 firecracker into a block of C4 and blow it up. And all it does is make a mess out of the C4, but the C4 does not explode. No. And uh, so we ultimately I got arrested. I got transported down to Florida. I was in jail for three months. And they kept trying to add all these charges in, right, to make it harder to get out so that I had a higher bail. And uh, so I, my buddy came in. He testified. The judge kind of went, oh, well, okay, well, we'll lower your bail to this, which was manageable for us at the time. And I was able to get out on bail. And I'm still waiting to see, is the state going to pursue their charges? Uh, ultimately, what I ended up having to plead to was when they did the search warrant, um, a buddy of mine, when we were training dogs, was a tier one operator, and he had an MP5, fully automatic MP5, that was a throwaway gun on one of their missions. And, of course, they don't throw them away unless they have to. If they can get their equipment back, they, they keep it. And um, and so he's like, yeah, I got like three of these things. Here, take this one. And uh, so I was like, sweet, cool. And uh, it was just basically sat in my safe, right? I was like, this is a cool little gun. I really like it, but I don't have much use to like actually do stuff with it. So it was just yeah. kind of like a keepsake. Well, when they did the search warrant, they found that, and they're like, this isn't registered. And uh, so it was a quote-unquote felony to have an unregistered fully automatic weapon. Okay. And uh, and so I had to plead guilty to that. And then when the judge did the sentencing, he goes, all right, uh, was there any evidence he stole it? And the prosecutor was like, no. He said, well, was there any evidence he was going to try to hurt anybody with it? And they're like, uh, no. He said, well, so he just had it? And the prosecutor was like, yeah, he just had it. And so he gave me probation, which was the lightest uh, sentence he could have given me at the time. And um, and I moved on. But I was I was literally so I couldn't go home because my wife had a restraining order and all kinds of other craziness. And I and she was a witness in the whole thing. So I couldn't go over and interact or anything like that. So uh, my mom was like, hey, come live with me for a couple months. And so I was staying there and I just started right off the bat going, hey, dog training classes available for anybody who wants to come. And uh, one of the things that happened while I was in jail, of course, you know, the minute I got to jail, by the way, I got divorce papers. And um, and then we went to family court while I was there. And the she's like, well, he's not taking care of us. And I'm like, bitch, you took my ability to take care of you away. Like yeah. I was you know, paying all the bills. I was taking care of everything before yeah. you called the cops. And uh, so uh, the judge goes, all right, well, everything that you guys own is hers so she can sell it to take care of the kids. So literally, and, and I made the big mistake of anybody who thinks, hey, I'm going to make my wife a partner in the business. No. If something happens to me, she's no. taken care of. Don't do it. No. And uh, so I'll, I'll never make that mistake again. No, she can inherit the business if something happens. Yes, yes. Right. It, 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 you before you die. So she got everything, all the dogs, all the equipment, all the uh, stuff I'd built up in the Army that I'd had for years, uh, everything. And so I literally had the the bag and the one Pelican case that my buddy had kept for me uh, when we when I got arrested in Mississippi. And um, and so I had to barter and trade and, you know, work out deals with her to basically buy my dogs back and to buy that that program back to be able to rebuild the business back up. But I just started running the business right off the bat. As soon as I got out, I didn't know if I was going to have a state charge. I didn't know if I was going to have a federal charge. I didn't know if I was going to go back to jail for 10 years. But it was like, well, I'm not going to sit around and do nothing. And uh, and so I just jumped into it and, and uh, started making it happen. And, you know, I've been watching a lot of your shorts and stuff like that. You use the term passion a lot when it comes to this type of thing. That's obviously a term that I've used. I've, I've been saying follow your passion forever. Um, 
but that word means different things to different people. When you say that, what does it mean to you? So I heard one time, and I honestly, I wish I could remember who I heard it from, but there was a guy one time that was talking about the word passion, and he said the very first time the word passion was used in the English language was to refer to Jesus being crucified on the cross. Hmm. And um, and that's why they call it the passion of the Christ. And he said, a lot of people think of passion as something I really like. And so, you know, they have a hobby or they have a thing that they kind of like to do. And they think I'm passionate about it because I like it. And yeah. uh, and then they get into the weeds and they get into the suffering and they get into the hardship of running a business and they quit. And um, and when I heard this guy's description of passion, I was like, that makes all the difference in the world, in my mind, at least. And so. The way he described passion was, um, he said, the original definition of passion is, what are you willing to suffer for? Mm. And if you're willing to suffer for a thing, then you're passionate about it. Now, that obviously means that you have to like it, too, or you're not going to be willing to suffer for it. But we like a lot of things that we're not willing to suffer for. I really like ice cream, but I'm not going to go suffer for ice cream. And so, uh, and to me, I go... One of the things I really appreciate about Jordan Peterson is that he talks about the tragedy of life, that all of us are going to have hardships in life. Um, no matter how good your life is going right now, something bad is going to happen to you in the next five or ten years. It could be that your business starts to struggle. It could be that you lose a job, your spouse gets sick, whatever it is. And it might not be even that big a deal, right? But it, it's going to be something that causes some level of suffering and tragedy in your life. And if your idea is I'm doing this thing because I like it. It's really easy to give up on it. If your idea is I'm willing to suffer to make this thing happen, then when the suffering comes, you're like, well, just more of what I'm used to doing, more of what I'm willing to do. Like I already committed to this. I'm willing to, to make the sacrifices, which is suffering. I'm willing to you know, stay up late and lose sleep and whatever it is that needs to happen for this thing to succeed. And so it's just it kind of sets you up for success when those hard times and those kind of brick walls that we run up against in life come come along. Yeah, I mean, the etymology of that word really is that some external force was made upon you to do a thing to cause you to suffer. Yes. Right. And in modern English, it, it, it can be very much like a, a sexual type thing or something. Right. But it also can be that it's a level of irrational force. Mm -hmm. that will cause you to act. And that actually links back to the original root of the word very well, because if it's in a rational force, that means right. I'm going to do this no matter what the fuck happens. Yep. And that's a very, very powerful thing, especially if it's properly channeled. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things Jordan mentions a lot in his talks, I, I really appreciate the psychology he brings to things and um, I don't agree with him on everything, just as kind of like anybody I listen to. I'm like, sure. well, I got like 80, I'm 80 percent with you or 90 yeah. percent. And um, but one of the things he brings up a lot is um, that no matter. So he talks about faith, but he doesn't talk about it from like the religious perspective. He talks about it yeah. from a psychological perspective. It says faith is believing that if you do the right thing, the best possible thing that could happen will happen. Hmm. And um and so, you know, you tell the truth, the best thing that could happen will happen. You work hard, the best thing that could happen will happen. And doesn't so, mean it'll be good. It just means it'll be the best thing that could happen to you in your life. Exactly. Because a lot of people want perfection, right? This is why they procrastinate a lot in starting a business or making any kind of change is I want it to all be perfect. 
And it's like, it's never going to be perfect. Perfection doesn't exist in this world. No. It's like, just do it, screw up, learn from your mistakes, and then stop making them, hopefully, or at least make them better or less. And um, and then things will continue to improve. But that doesn't mean you're not going to run up to those brick walls. That doesn't mean that, um, you know, bad things aren't going to happen and you just got to figure it out. But the, um, you know, when when you are willing to suffer for a thing, you're acknowledging that things are going to happen that I have no control over. I had no control over my ex-wife calling the police and saying he was going to do a thing that I was never going to do. Sure. And I just had to deal with it. And I could, like, and to be honest, like, you know, it's easy to say, Hey, I got out of jail and I just started the business back up and blah, blah. blah. And that is what actually happened. But while, you know, three months in there, it's <laughs> like, okay, well, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to start the business again. So I don't know what kind of things can you do as a, as a quote unquote felon, right? I could, uh, maybe I could get a a job driving trucks. Maybe, you know, I kind of like taking road trips. Maybe I could do truck driving. Maybe I could do this. Maybe I could do that. And then for this has happened to me over and over again. And I don't know if this is just my personality or exactly what it is, but I found that with the dogs, it's the thing I can't not do. Okay. And, uh, and I, I kind of, will encourage people that way. If there's something in your life that you can't not do, then that's probably something you're willing to suffer for and that you're passionate about. And I just found myself the minute I got out, it was like just right back into it. It's like, that's the thing I can't not do. And I, I tried to do other things when I was in the army. I tried to, to okay, let me back off of this dog thing a bit. Cause it is taking a lot of time. Like during the, the 10 years or so from the time I started training dogs to the time I got out of the military, Every four-day weekend in the military, if I wasn't deployed, I was in Canada training dogs. And that included Thanksgiving and Christmas for 10 years. And uh, and so, like, I was committed to it because it was one of those things that it's like, I can't not do this. Like, I'm just compelled to go and do this thing. Um, and, you know, almost to the level of maybe an obsession. But it was just – it was no matter what happened and what roadblocks came up and what things tried to get in the way, it was one of those things where it was just – almost like this singular focus toward that direction. And even when I attempted to shift and do something else, I would do it for a short period of time. And then I would just veer back on to the the path of moving forward with the dogs. And that kind of lines up with your definition of passion, right? It's a rational force. Like there's easier things you could do, but this is the thing that I feel I'm meant to do. And I think most people, their lives end up very unhappy because they're unwilling to suffer for what would make them happy because you're not going to be happy all the time. Right. It's not going to happen. And it's really, it would be a a terrible, a terrible curse Mm -hmm. to be happy all the time. You know, there's the, the, the old belief that Cain when was Cain was marked and then had to walk the earth forever and never die. Well, immortal's great. Well, until you've done it for 10,000 years, and then it's right. not so great anymore. So I think that like if we were always happy, then we would be inherently miserable because there's no contrast. It's like painting right. a picture with a white crayon on a white page. Yeah. There's nothing to see because you don't have a contrast. So we have joy because we experience sorrow. We have laughter because we experience tears and either without the other would just end up being completely miserable. 
And so yep. we have to have these challenges. We get bored as shit. I'm, you and I are a bit older than the average uh, person moving and shaking in the world today, I guess. So we probably played a lot less video games than like somebody my son's age or something. But we played video games when we were kids. And when you got to the point where you could just beat the game, yeah, you went and got another game because now it's freaking boring. Yep, it was too easy. And that's why I think games actually have the impact they do on people. They're a metaphor for life. Because yeah. life works that way, too. If there's no challenge in life, it gets very boring. I think a lot of our young people who feel like they have no purpose or whatever, it's because they've avoided challenge, they've avoided pain, they've avoided right. suffering. And then they'll say, but I'm unhappy and I'm miserable and I have pain and suffering. Yeah, but it's not what you chose. It's what you defaulted to instead of what you chose to endure. Because now you're not going anywhere and you're miserable versus right. I'm heading somewhere and I have misery between here and there, but it's yeah. that that goal. And like when you were dealing with shit, like being in jail, that sucks. I, I was in jail once for two days, so I can imagine three months. Um, yeah. But the fact that I will get out and I will mm -hmm. go do something, like that's hope. And that like that's why yep. I got to feel like the guys that are in for life or whatever. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah. Know. I couldn't imagine that situation. And there is a difference for sure between jail and prison. Yeah. So jail is where you're waiting for your trial. Now, some guys are in jail for yeah. like three years because they, they extend you can. So you, you have a right to a speedy trial. Right. So technically yeah. within 180 days, they're supposed to, to do the trial. And uh, that's actually how, why they ended up dropping the state charges was, um, so, you know, they were like, oh, well, the federal government's taking over. So yeah. and I never waived my right to a speedy trial. I was like, ah. let's get this shit over with. Yeah. And uh, and so the 180 days came. They didn't. Uh, have a court date set so it just expired and they can never away. go back and pursue those again and um so that played to my uh my benefit on on that side but um yeah when you when you're looking at this kind of stuff it's like uh you know i i do i really appreciate a lot of the stuff that jordan peterson says and i i bring him up a lot in my stuff and i try and give him credit when he comes up with ideas because i'm like man i wish i came up with that but <laughs> it wasn't my idea but um you know he talks about uh, there's an idea that positive emotion is not experienced with the accomplishment of a goal. Positive emotion is experienced when you have a goal and you make noticeable progress toward the goal. And so they like to use the example of like graduating from high school or college. Yeah. It's like if you're making noticeable progress toward the graduation, you, you get excited and you're motivated and you're, you're moving forward. And then graduation day comes and it's like this very short temporary high. And then it, the, the day after, you're like, well, what do I do now? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. I felt like I accomplished something, and I'm the low man on the totem pole in this job. And then you have all these disgruntled college kids, right, that yeah. thought, well, I thought I was the, the top guy. No, you're, you're nothing. Yeah. The but, speaker said I was prepared for life now. And yeah, exactly. yeah, I really am not. And uh, so if, if you're not – like if you're approaching the, the completion of a goal – Make sure you're making the next goal before you get there. Before you die. And, uh, because the, that progress, when you see that I'm moving, even that's why they say it's so important to make uh, small little victories. Because small victories show you I'm making progress, I'm making progress, I'm making progress. You're trying to pay off debt, pay off the smallest one first because you'll actually be able to get it paid off. And then you'll notice, hey, I got one less thing to pay off. Yeah. And um, and so making these small goals, stop setting these gigantic five or 10 year goals or even an annual goal. It's good to have those as like kind of the, the broad in that general direction is where I want to go. But if you don't set 
weekly and quarterly goals, you're going to lose motivation real quick because it's difficult to see progress toward an annual goal unless you set up some kind of milestones. Like, I need to get this done in order to get that thing done in a year. Okay, let's get this thing done first. And, um, you know, when we're talking about starting businesses and, and making changes in your life, do something today, right? Go get your URL on your website if you don't have it. Like, that's something. If you need to file it with the state, go do that paperwork today. It's like 150 bucks. You do it online in 10 minutes and you're done. And uh, But do something that moves you in the direction that you need to go. And then you start with the small things and those things start to accumulate. And, um, and that positive emotion of making that progress forward toward your goal continues to build and build and build. And it really helps when you kind of run into those times when you're not feeling very motivated. Yeah, I really like the part about having the next goal in mind. So you're mm-hmm. going to something new because there is that feeling, little stupid shit, like when you work really hard to cook a meal and then you sit down and the thing that you took three hours to make you eat in 20 minutes, you're like, that was it? Like, yeah. And that's kind of, again, back to metaphor for life. Like there needs to be, okay, what next? And I think a lot of our young people, you know, they do do that with college at least because I get out of you know this school and I'm going to go to that school. Right. But then they get out of college. And then it's just not because I thought everything was going to be super. Now I've got one hundred and ten thousand dollars in debt and a degree in bitterness studies or whatever. And I don't know what to do with myself where if you think about it, what you just said would fix a lot of the mistakes that kids make going to school, going to college Mm -hmm. anyway, because when they selected their degree, they would need to be thinking, well, four years from now, when I'm kicked out of my dorm and I'm out on the street, what do I do? What do I do then? The teacher patting them on the head and say, don't worry, Johnny, you'll make lots of money and pay it back. Like that's never made any sense to me that, you know, and I actually know several different teachers who have done projects to make kids think that way in high school. Yeah. One almost got fired. One did got fired and one got reprimanded because Uh kids went home and told their parents, I don't think I want to do this because I don't know how I'm ever going to pay for it. And that made the parents angry. Yeah. Yeah. This is a brainwashed society that we live in that we're, and that's a big part of it. I mean, I've talked about this a lot, but I've never kind of put that spin on it that it's not thinking about, well, what comes after. Right. So it's not just a good lifestyle design component, but it's also a way to avoid misery. Because I think when when people like you and I talk about suffering and getting through it and whatever, I think people think about it as though you should seek it. You can seek misery and yeah. seek suffering. No, you just accept that it's a default. Yeah. There will be times when you will run into it. And you power through it. You don't do it for the sake of the suffering. You do it for the sake of getting past it. I I had a great sales mentor when I was a very young man. He said, the problem with sales is you get really excited over stupid little things. Mm -hmm. And you get really depressed over stupid little things. And that's what so much happens in life. If you're not making a conscious effort to have both the short, the mid, and the long term. Yeah. Planned out. And then the next thing, then, you know, you get into doldrums or you get into like now this hurts. And I just don't want to do it because it hurts. Right. But but everything I've ever done in my life that mattered involves some pain, some discomfort, some thing you had to get through to make it worth doing. And I, I don't know a successful entrepreneur who's like, oh, I just started a business out of school and everything worked. Like, right. I know that's the Instagram, TikTok presentation these idiots give now. 
I think that's another problem. We have all these young people looking at those people that like, well, I don't understand. I did everything this guy that I listened yeah. to for 30 seconds. He, he was a millionaire by 26. It must be easy. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and the guy maybe went through a lot of misery and got there, but he wants to paint a rosy picture, or he's full of shit. Right. I listen to some of these people. I own 75 properties, and I've never even seen – shut up. No, you don't. Well, they claim to be a millionaire because they've got all this these assets levered. Yeah. But if you were to – to look at how much debt they have, they're actually like you know millionaires in debt, not millionaires in in uh, money that they can spend. They've just levered all this debt, and they're up to their eyeballs in debt that they may never be able to pay back. Anything goes wrong, and everything falls apart. But you know, it, well, if I took all my assets that I have and I ignore all the debt that I have on these assets, look, I'm worth millions of dollars. Yeah, they, when you mentioned the thing about uh, college, and I experienced this going through college as well, was it, it's really pervasive that we paint this totally false picture of what life is going to be like after college. And I think a lot of it is because a lot of our parents went through the, uh, I went to college, I got a job. It wasn't really what I wanted, but I've just kind of settled. And so I guess this is just how life is. So this is what you should do too. And, um, and so, and then they, you know, but they don't want to admit that they're miserable so they tell their kids, well, if you do these things, you'll be, quote unquote, successful like me, even though I, I hate my life and I, I'm going through a midlife crisis. But I'm going to hide it from my kids because I don't want them to know it. Yeah. And, uh, and then the kids get into that and they're like, well, this sucks. Like, this isn't what I was told it was going to be. And um, rather than the, the risk taking factor, I honestly think one of the best things we can do for our children is make them suffer. And um, because one of the best experiences, well, yeah, the first best experience I had in my life was my mom is uh, German of German descent. And and I tell her these stories and she's like, holy crap, I forgot about that. I'm sorry. And I'm like, I wish you were harder on me. Sure. But I tell stories to people where I would, you know, one of my jobs was to mow or to weed eat the yard. Right. And it was yeah. an acre yard with a push mower, not self-propelled. And uh, and if I, if you cut a corner with a push mower, I guess with any mower, you get that little, that little edge that you miss, right? That yeah. little line that didn't get cut. And so when I would go mow the yard, my mom would come out and inspect it. And if there was one spot she found that wasn't mowed, do the whole thing again. Not just come fix that spot, mow the whole yard all oh, over wow. again. If wow. I missed one tree when I was weed eating, we'd eat the whole yard all over. And she would watch out the windows at the house yeah. and make sure I was going to each spot, right? And um, and then I went to basic training, and I thought I had a pretty decent work ethic. I mean, my mom was like, get out there and work, right? And um, And then that was hard. But I came out of it with a tremendous appreciation for my drill sergeants. Well, well basic is if you did everything right, they'd tell you you did it wrong anyway. It's just part right. of the game, right? You know? Well, that's how it was when I started training dogs, too. Like, yeah. I've learned so well, and, and to me and my and my mentality, I've benefited so much from the drill sergeant mentality yeah. that I'm like, that's the best thing I feel like I can do for other people. Is I'm gonna get I'm gonna be the drill sergeant to you in this situation so that you can have the benefit that I received because I think anybody who misses out on this benefit is missing out on on good life lessons and um, so I remember in basic training we were doing the um, the MBC chamber the gas chamber and so for anybody who isn't familiar with that they fill the gas chamber with CS gas which is basically mace. Yeah. And um, and they have these little tablets, and they light them on fire, and they, they fill this room with this gas. And you put your gas mask on, 
and you go into the room and they kind of have you stretch and do some jumping jacks and some push-ups. And so you get breathing a little bit heavy and they're like, see, you can still breathe. It's still all working. Everything's sealed up. And so you build confidence in your mask. And then they have you break your seal on your mask and lift it up and do something, right? So yeah. like, what's your social security number? And you have yeah. to yell it out. And then, yeah. you know, say the Pledge of Allegiance or whatever they would have yeah. you do. And, and they would have you go until you had to take a breath. Yeah. And then when you had to take a breath, your mask was off. And so you yeah. start coughing and your nose starts running like yeah, a Once box. about a gallon of snot comes out of your nose, they let you yeah. out. Like that's. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then you'd have to seal up and blah, blah, blah. Well, so we do, we do that, right? And we're like, you know, snot everywhere, coughing, can barely breathe. And, you know, our platoon comes out and we were like the last platoon to go through. So the other three platoons that were ahead of us are loading onto the buses to ride back to the barracks. And our platoon sergeant starts yelling, uh, form up, form up, fall in, everybody. And we're like, what the heck? Okay, so we're all getting in formation. And he goes, right. Face forward, march, double time, march. And we ran the two miles back to the barracks. Yeah. So everybody else takes the buses back. Yeah. We run back. And and the guys in the platoon were like, man, this sucks. How come we're running and they're all on the buses and blah, blah, blah. Well, we got back to the barracks and they're all getting off the buses. They're still coughing. They're still oh, yeah. gagging. They're still trying to blow their noses. And all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute. None of us are coughing. Yeah, we've all got we've all sweat the the CS out of our uniforms. Yeah, yeah, you like, get it. We're off. feeling great, and it was like that moment I realized our drill sergeant is taking care of us. He's not doing this just to make it is suffering to do it, yeah. but he's making us suffer so that we're better. Yeah, and, and that was like the light bulb moment in in basic training for me. Yeah, because how great is it to be on a bus full of guys all covered in CS gas? And breathing, that I know, right? Wonderful. And the windows are all down and it's blowing around in yeah. there still. And yeah. uh, so it looked like they were getting the easy route. Oh, they get to get on buses and ride back. Really, they never cleared the, the CS out of their systems, whereas yeah. we did. And and our drill sergeant did that over and over and over again throughout basic training. It looked like we were getting the raw end of the stick, but the, we won every ribbon in basic training except for, I think, one, and we actually won that one, but they said, well, you can't win them all, so we're going to give this to this other platoon. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, like the beginnings of that, somebody else needs a trophy too thing, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and so I was just like, everything that I've learned that has been meaningful in my life, I've learned through some form of suffering. And I'm like, the other thing that suffering does is this. When you go through something that's really hard, and then you do something that other people kind of think is hard and complain about. You're like, but this is easy. Yeah. Like, I, like go yeah. do that thing for a little while and then yeah. come back and tell me this is hard. This isn't hard. This is easy. But when your perception is I'm used to sitting in air conditioning and pushing buttons on a controller to, quote, unquote, accomplish things in this video game. And that's your version of hard. I died five times before I conquered the level. <laughs> it was a hard level. As opposed to getting out and almost passing out from heat stroke, carrying 45-pound ruck and having you know 20 blisters on your feet. And then somebody says, man, it's really hot out here because they're sweaty. Yeah. It's like, no, this isn't that hot. Like, let's go do something really hard and then come back to this. We actually use that technique in training dogs. When we have the dogs that are they hit a point where they're like really stressed at something, we go do something harder 
Yeah. And we know like we're going to have to help them through this, right? Cause they're not yeah. going to be able to do it. But then we bring them back to the thing that they were struggling on. And all of a sudden they're like, Oh, well, this is easy. Like I'll do this yeah. all day long because that other thing over there was way harder. And, yeah. um, so, you know, I, I tell my clients a lot. Discipline is only learned through discomfort. Like you can that. wake up early and you're learning a thing, but you're not actually developing discipline until it's hard, until it's, there's discomfort associated with it. And then once you've pushed through it, with discomfort, once you've learned to suffer for a thing, right back to our passion, then now you've actually got discipline. But yeah. you can't get discipline unless you're you suffer, and you can do that willingly, or you can do it by somebody else doing it for you, like a drill sergeant, or you can do it by just life kicking your ass. Yeah, I've always said as trainers, I don't care if it's people, dogs, whatever, that there's there's only two things we really have to work with: mm-hmm. pleasure and pain. And we would often prefer to use pleasure, but pain works better. Mm-hmm. And if my job as a trainer, as a teacher, et cetera, is to make you the best that I can, yep. then I owe it to you to use some level of pain. Because if I don't, I'm not giving you the best learning experience that you can have. And I even mean that when teaching things like permaculture or something, people would even understand that. Like, I'm not going to have you doing push-ups to learn how to put a swale in. Right. But I will push you intellectually to a point you're not comfortable with. But it's yeah. like like you said, like if I push you there, when I bring you back to what I really want you to learn, oh, that's easy. And right. I think that's true across the board. I also think that like there's a place for allowing people who are learning to have a fork in the road. And one yeah. is going to be very uncomfortable for them. But it might seem like the better way to go instead of like that's what your drill sergeant did. He did it for you. Right. Or. Here's a decision that seems a little more difficult at first, but it's actually a much easier path. And then yes. whatever decision they make, and this is what I do with my grandson right now, because his work ethic, to be honest, is dog shit, right? Yeah. So that's what I do with him. I did it this morning that you know, had to do with his job. He made the wrong choice. It made his life worse, but then I had a conversation with him. Who made this decision, yep. right? And why did you do it? And did you did you were you able to look forward and see that long-term it was a, Worst decision than the first. Well, yeah. Okay. Then, well, yeah, it's on me. Like, and that's, you know, that's the case. Like you, you mentioned the gas chamber thing. When we were in basic and we came back from our FTX, which for the non-initiated field training exercise, big one you do at the end, you're out in the field for like a week. Yep. We were supposed to march back like 15 miles. And the Lieutenant asked us if we wanted to, to hike or to double time. Mm -hmm. And we chose to double time. And that fucker took us about, it was about a six-mile double time instead of a 15-mile hike. We made it back before everybody else, and they're like, just chill out in the barracks. And like, so we made that choice consciously, and at the point, it was somewhat of a level of ego, like, we're better than them. Yeah. We're better than them. We had no idea what would happen, but it did. Or I'm sure you've had the experience where they're like, you know, two more miles or whatever, and you like, you think you're going to die, and it's really like 50 more feet. Yes. But then the people that fall out, they're just totally screwed because yep. they chose to quit. Like, well, I think there's I, a place for a lot of this in our life. That's why, you know, I struggle with this, Joel, where I look at how messed up people are. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't like to pick on younger people, but really, it's the people under 40 that just, I feel like that group has a larger percentage of people that are just messed up. It's not their fault, but it, it is their problem. And right. I looked, if we had some level of national service, maybe not even military, just yeah. some level of you got to do something for somebody other than yourself. 
You have to be committed to something and you have to force yourself through it that maybe we would be better off as a society, even if it's not the thing that we should do on an ethical standpoint. Because I don't like indenturing anybody's servitude, but right, or at right. least offer some sort of incentive to like, hey, you know, like why do we have something like Peace Corps and they say, well, you have to have a college degree right. to do Peace Corps. It's absolutely asinine. I, I need to have a college degree to go live in a third world shithole and bust my ass and help people when my degree has nothing to do with how I'm good. I get if you're a doctor or something, but like the average person who goes in the Peace Corps, they're out there like helping people build shacks or something. They don't know they can have a degree in like accounting. Right. Like, shouldn't we create some sort of a pathway for people that, that would be willing to serve to serve and to gain some benefit from it, but maybe not immediately. Yeah. Well, you know, when you were saying that it made me think of what was the average parent like, when we were growing up versus the average parent like that raised, you know, what we would refer to as whatever millennials or Gen X or whatever the you know, below 40, like you were just saying. And we didn't have like I remember when I was growing up, AC, you know, central air conditioning was like just starting to become mainstream. Like we got air conditioning in our house when I was 12 years old and I grew up in Plant City, Florida, right outside Tampa. And okay. uh, so at nighttime, we would open our windows and turn the fans on. But I would come home from school and my mom would be like, get out of the house. And I don't want to see you until dinner time, which was basically when it started to get dark. Yeah. Right? When it starts getting dark, you Street get that light home. or the porch light comes on. Your ass better be home. And I don't want to see if yep. I see you before that. I will give you something to do. You'll get chores. That's right. And I already had chores on the weekend and I didn't want any more. So I would I would run around in the woods like I was the kid who like I I never ran around without shoes on. But I always wore blue jeans because I was always in the in the woods and there were always thorns in the woods. And so the only thing that keeps you from getting all scratched up is blue jeans. So I always had blue jeans, some kind of boots and my T-shirt on. And I would come home. My forearms would be all scratched up because I would climb the trees. Sweet. And then I would get so high in the tree, the only way to get down the tree was to hug the tree and slide down <laughs> it with your forearms getting all scratched up. And yeah. there was nobody there to help me. Like, I was all by myself. So it wasn't like, hey, can you come help me get down from this tree? No, I just had to figure it out. Yeah. And uh, they got me a pocket knife, and I always had cuts on my fingers, learning to not – don't cut this way with your finger in the way because yeah, yeah. you slice your finger. Well, I learned that by cutting my fingers a 100 times and finally learning, okay, I probably shouldn't don't do that. Do that. <laughs> and, uh, and so whether it was – like just the hardness of go out and figure something out for a while. Don't, I don't want you here where you're just sitting around doing nothing. Or it was the, you know, the disciplinarian parents or the ones that had chores. And I mean, I don't know of any kids when I was growing up that didn't have some chores, at least oh, on the no. weekends. Right. And nowadays it's like, Oh, let them be kids and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know what? Letting a kid be a kid means that means they're going to be useless when they're an adult. Like people every so often people will watch our videos with the dogs and everything. And they're like, why do you make the dogs do that? And I'm like, first of all, if you don't make a Malinois do something, oh, yeah. they're going to eat your couch and rip your house to pieces. Yep. So you better make them do something. And they love the stuff that we do. They love tracking in the swamps. They love doing bite work. They love working on the obstacles. They get more excited to when they know we're going to go out and do work than when we do anything else. And, um, and so I, I feel like a lot of it is, like you said, it's not necessarily their fault, but it is their problem. Mm-hmm. But I think it's our fault, quote unquote, as the, the generation that raised them because we yes. didn't make them do the hard things, even if it was just go outside and I don't want to see you for a while. Now, of course, you know, the 
a lot of things changed in society with pedophiles and stuff like that and the danger to kids, especially in cities and all of those sorts of things that, you know, parents were concerned See, I, about. I've never let that be an out because when I was a kid in Florida, mm -hmm. in Jacksonville, before we moved to Pennsylvania, Otis Toole, Ted Bundy, uh, I'm trying to think of the guy that ran around with Otis Toole, Henry Lee Lucas, like, this is not like it's actually a new risk, right? That's I just think true. it's more – more people are more in touch with it. Like, Yeah, it's, it's shown on the news all the time, right? Yeah. Where people have yeah. an irrational fear about it. Yeah. And uh, when you're talking about that uh, story with your grandson about making the decision, uh, yeah. it reminded me of – I can't remember exactly uh, who I remember telling this story to me, but um, there was an episode of The Simpsons where Homer was getting, like, plastered drunk. Right. Okay. And, and somebody tells him, uh, hey, like, I don't think you want to do that. Like, that's going to be really bad. And he goes, that's a problem for future Homer. I feel really <laughs> bad for that guy. Right? I think and, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. That's but a that's problem for future Homer. Yep. And um, but Jordan Peterson brings that up a lot. He's like, you are not the same you as you were a week ago or two weeks ago. You are a different you. And so you are doing you a disservice in the future if you don't set yourself up for future success, right? So you're almost like a plurality of people in, in a sense, you know, that concept of you, you never step in the same river twice because it's yeah. flowing and it's moving. And, um, and so if you aren't looking out for future you, nobody else is going to. And, um, and, I think yeah. that episode of The Simpsons is where he drank the candle wax so he could eat the super hot peppers, and then he tripped out in the in the in the uh, desert like he was on peyote because the peppers were so hot, right? Yes, like, exactly there is it. a lesson in life that that's a problem for future Homer, uh, yep. and it was right. Yep. It was, and I, I feel really bad for that guy. Well, some people live their whole life that way. Like, well, that's a problem in the future. I feel really bad for that guy, but I want to do this right now. Yeah, and so it's. They're not willing to back to suffering, right? Because giving up something you want to do now so that you have something better is temporary suffering. It's it, You're depriving yourself of something that you could do now so that you can have something better in the future. There's a lot of memes out that say things like, you know, do the things nobody else will do now so that you can do the things nobody else can, can do, do later. later. And uh, that sort of concept. So what would you say to somebody that's kind of just stuck in, like, you look at it and you go, okay, this is not just whining. This is a hard fucking part of life to be in for this person. You actually feel for this person. But like we said, it may not be your fault, but it is your problem. Yeah. So everybody has some problem or another to deal with. And, like, I think of my aunt frequently, and she, she was when she was young, she was extremely attractive. And she got married to a guy that was making a lot of money. And, of course, you know, because she thought she was hot stuff because she was attractive, he got tired of her pretty quick and divorced her. And then she was slightly less attractive at that point. So she's, yeah. But she was still able to get a guy that had pretty decent money. And then he got tired of her. And eventually she's had, like, four husbands. And now she's alone and, and barely surviving in life, right? And I go, okay, so let's say some version of that happened to, you know, to you and you're at a position in life where you're like, Hey, I don't feel like I could do anything. It comes back to kind of the concept that, that Jordan brings up a lot of make your bedroom, like clean your bedroom up. And the idea is this. So, so people will listen to that often and be like, well, that's not going to help me. Cleaning my bedroom is not going to help me. It's like, here's the concept behind the idea <laughs> Yeah, is 
we all have dragons to slay, right? But sometimes we look at the biggest dragon there is and we go, I want to slay that one. And it's like, if you try to slay that one, it will kill you. But look, over there is a much smaller dragon. You could probably take that one. Go slay that dragon first, and then later on, you'll be able to slay the really big Get dragon. Get some dragon slaying experience behind you, right? Exactly. And yeah. so Jordan would mention things like he would have, um, uh, you know, people in his clinic who were depressed. They were like, you know, in their upper 30s. They're still living in their parents' basements, and they're trying to get their life together, but they just can't, right? Yeah. And so they would come, and he would help them work through the problem, and he would, he would say, okay, what can you do? that you would do that would make some difference in your life. And yeah. sometimes he said you have to help them figure that thing out. And so he would say, okay, go home this week and clean your room. And he said some of the clients would come back after a week, and he would say, how did it go? And they would say, I brought the vacuum cleaner to the door of my room. I looked at my room. I was overwhelmed. I leaned the vacuum cleaner in the doorway, and I stepped over it all week long. And I didn't get anything done. And he would go, okay. You know, and some of us would look at that and be like, that guy's a loser. Yeah. It's like, well, if there's a sense in which that's the case, right? But if that's too big a task, he would say, organize your sock drawer. So do instead something. of focusing on the whole room, do your sock drawer. Match your socks, put them together, organize your sock drawer. And then he would come back. Okay, I did that. Now organize the next drawer. Now the next one. Pretty soon your whole uh, dresser is organized. Now move over to your closet and start hanging your clothes. Now make your bed. Now, So wherever you are in life, a lot of times we try and, and we go, well, this is where I want to be. And where you want to be is 10 years worth of work, right? Yeah. You need to work yeah. for 10 years to get to where you, quote, unquote, want to be. Okay, well, that's a good goal. That's your broad, like, in this general direction is where I want to go. Now, first of all, you don't really know if that's where you want to be because you're not there, so you don't know what it's like. But yeah. at least that's a starting so point. And so I, I generally think I want to be in this direction. What little step can you take that you're willing to take that will move you in that direction? And, and Well, I think, and there's something really important there. The place yeah. you think you want to be may not be the place you really want to be. If you're taking little steps – you have a chance to make corrections every step. Like, okay, I thought I wanted this, but what I really want is that. But I've made progress. Maybe I would have made more progress if I was heading to destination B right out of the gate. But I'm still closer to B than I would have been if I did nothing. Exactly. And so now I can make that course correction. Because if you don't do that and you don't accept the real-world feedback, and you end up like one of my best friend's ex-wives. She wanted to be an architect. Mm -hmm. because her dad was an architect. Right. Hence ex-wife, daddy issues, obviously. You do a thing just because yep. your dad did it. Like, that's a movie that's not real life, you know? Yep. And so, but every step along the way, she was in the, the kind of the, uh, the, the sunk cost fallacy. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's all kinds of things you could switch to, but, but I've all, all the way through, including the internship they have to do, and she ends up being an architect, and hating it because yep. she was unwilling to accept the fact I don't really want to do this. And I think what she's doing now or was doing back when they ended up split up was like, she worked for a company that does like interior design work, designing like closets for rich people. Right. right? Which is sort of related, but you totally didn't need a degree in architecture and $150,000 exactly. in debt 
to do yep. that, you needed to learn CAD yep. and have an eye for detail, which that's all she needed to do that. But because she would not change course, not because yeah. it's what she really wanted, but because, well, I don't know what I want. Right. That's a huge mistake, too. So that's a person that actually didn't quit, powered through, but didn't realize along the way, like, I'm going to hate this destination. Right. Well, I think that's most people who, quote, graduate from college and have a job. Yeah. Is that, that are unhappy. Now, there are some people who, you know, they just enjoy what they do and they work for somebody else and they're good at what they do. That's and fine. they enjoy it. And that's great. Yeah, I love it. It, but if if you're that person, you're probably not listening to this going, how do I start a business? No. Right. Help me out. If you're asking that question, then you're the person who's working your job going, I don't like what I'm doing and I want to yeah. do something else. And um, and the the idea that we mentioned at the very beginning where a lot of people don't take that step because they're afraid to lose what they do have. And even though what they do have in their mind kind of sucks and they don't like it. But it's better than, I guess, living under a bridge because everybody always goes to like the worst possible situation. Well, yeah. if I if I quit my job, which I'm not per se recommending just quitting your job. But if I did that and I went over and did this and it doesn't work out, I'm going to lose my house and everything and my marriage will fall apart and I'll end up in a bridge down by the river. And yeah. um, and it's like, well, there's a lot of things you can do between then and between those two things. Right. Like when I first got out of the army, I went back to law enforcement and I was like, OK, I already kind of have a temperament where I don't per se like most people. Yeah. And when you're a law enforcement officer, everyone you talk to is lying to you. Yeah. Almost everyone you interact with probably did something that could technically they could be arrested for. And so you, you despise people even more. You distrust people even more. And I was like, I just hated everyone. And I decided I don't, I already have this issue. I don't yeah. need to make this issue. Worse. I don't need a gun, a badge and mace. Yes. On, and a taser and this attitude together. And this right? attitude. And that's most law enforcement officers, right? Yeah. And uh, and so I was like, you know what? I'm going back to Alaska. And so I'm, I'm in Tampa, Florida, and I load up the family, and I drive to Alaska. I made the decision, and a week later we were driving to Alaska. And then we get to Alaska, and I'm doing real estate because one of my buddies up there was like, we have a real estate company. I did it yeah. for a year. It was way too much work for not enough money, but that's when I sold my first fully trained dog. And I went, you know what? This thing is going to work. We're doing the dogs full time. But I was willing to take those steps because I wasn't happy with where I was and I was willing to get rid of it. What I wasn't willing to do was my ex-wife was like the anchor holding me back. Now, I'm not saying I should have necessarily divorced her, but you Looking have back, to- maybe you should have. <laughs> Maybe I should have looking back, right? But yeah. I, I, in general, am like, hey, like if you make a commitment to somebody, you should probably keep sure. it unless you have a really yeah. good reason not to. But in, but what I should have done at least, and what most people need to do is go. We're both adults. You don't get to tell me what to do, and I don't get to tell you what to do. We have to coexist. So there's some compromise that needs to happen here. But you don't dictate my life, and I don't dictate your life. And so this is what I'm going to do. If you're not good with that, then whatever decision you have to make, you make. But I'm doing this thing and, you know, hope you come with me or hope we can make it all work out. Mm-hmm. And um, and so when everything got ripped away, well, now the decision was made for me and I didn't have to make that quote unquote hard decision. Right. It was a different hard because it was somebody else, you know, throwing you into a situation that you just had to deal with. But it removed the whole, oh, no, I'm, quote, unquote, scared. The other yeah. thing that was, 
so I'd, I'd been sleeping about four hours a night for about four and a half years at that point. And so the very first thing I did when I went to jail was I slept for two weeks. Like I would wake up and eat and go right back to sleep. And I woke up in two weeks. It's the weirdest thing because you're like in jail, right? Yeah. I woke up one day and I was just like, okay, I'm not tired anymore. And man, I feel like a whole new person. You needed a nap. I need a big time nap, right? I tell people you can, you can function on four hours sleep technically, but you lose who you are in a, in a, to a large degree. Like, it is extremely important. And uh, so for short periods of time, like suck it up and do the thing, but you definitely need sleep. I, and I didn't uh, appreciate that enough at the time. Yeah. But then I was like, okay, well now I'm in this new situation. Well, what am I going to do? Am I going to sit around and pout about it? Or am I going to do something? And the thing I decided to do while I was in jail was, you know, I, I lucked out and I, I got some really good cellmates. And uh, just in terms of, you know, like we weren't fighting and, and having all kinds of issues. And um, uh, so I just started doing some basic workouts, some push-ups and some squats. And then the other guy in the cell was like, hey, we used to do that. Like, I want to jump in with you. And it's like, all right. So we started off doing like 50, you know, each doing 50 push-ups and going back and forth and doing like three or four sets of them. And then we push it up to 100. And then we push it up to 150. And by the time we were done, we could do like 200 straight push-ups. I was like, I have never been able to do this many push-ups straight with basically like if I could have done this in the army, I would have like totally maxed out everything all. And I usually maxed out my PT test, but yeah. it's like 30 rest for a second, you know, stretch because you can't move your hands from their position. Yeah. And then, like, you know, 30 and then another 20 and then 10 and 10 and 10 and taking breaks in between and you know, doing all the stretching stuff you can do. Man, I, I could knock out 200 straight push-ups without even uh, stopping. And, and then we would do, then we started putting squats in every other one. So it was like push-ups and squats, push-ups and squats. Yeah. But it was, it was something to do, right? It was, it was I'm not just going to That's why so many with, dudes in prison or jail get jacked because it's yeah. something you can do. But, not, and there are definitely guys who do that. And I think they function better there. And of yeah. course, if you're, if you're big, people aren't going to pick on you either. And that helps. Yeah. But a lot of people literally just give up. Yeah. And they yeah. just sit around and do nothing. And they're like, well, my life sucks and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, your life my has lawyer fucked me over, whatever it is. And, right. Yeah. It's always somebody else's fault. And but like, even though that all happened because my ex-wife called the cops, I never sat around going, man, I got screwed by her. Yeah. I was just like, well, all right. Guess that part of my life's over. Time to move on. You know, I think as we're having a conversation, what you're making me think of, though, is another reason so many people are miserable is they're pursuing a thing with no idea why they're pursuing a thing. Their reason is irrational. And what I mean by that is I was a little bit surprised, not hugely, but a little bit surprised to hear that, like, the number one thing that, like, teens and 20-somethings want to be today is a social media influencer. Right. That's their goal in life, not to be an astronaut or a pilot or a doctor, social media influencer. But when I heard that, I said, well, it might be a good idea instead of just mocking them to mm-hmm. ask why. Yep. Why? And you might think it's because, you know, then they're beautiful or whatever. No, it's because they don't know what they're wishing for, because right. what they do is they watch this influencer that is successful and they have no idea how much work goes into that. And they think, well, I'll just make a video or take a picture once a day and I'll have lots of money. They want it not because they actually want it, because they think it's a way to make a living that's no work. Yep. Which if you make a living with no work, 
then what you end up doing is finding work to do that's unrelated to your income. Like yep. people I know that are very wealthy, they have philanthropy, they do it. That doesn't necessarily mean writing checks. Like, you know, Diego, who's been to several of our, our workshops, mm-hmm. he built McDonald's franchises, sold them off. He's taken care of financially. He works with at-risk youth now, which yep. he makes no money doing, and he doesn't do it just because, well, I'm a good guy, so I do good things. It's I need something purposeful and meaningful in my life. So we have these yep. young people, whether it's social media influence or whatever other – there was a bunch of shit on the list, and, like, one of them was actually a thing, right? Because I find most influencers, they're not influencers professionally. They have a thing, right. and then their influencer status is to promote their thing. Right. Like, so there was like one thing out of the top five that even made sense for a person that's 18 year olds to really be thinking about. But the other four were all things that I'm going, I bet you the average person that says this thinks that if they're successful doing that, they no longer have to work, which number one isn't true. And like I said, number two, even if it wasn't, you're going to seek something to do. Yeah, we we all have to have a purpose. And if, if you don't have a purpose in your life, then why are you doing anything that you're doing? Yeah. Now, some people's purpose, like I, I've known people who their purpose is their family, right? Yeah. And so they go to a, to work at a job that maybe they don't really like that much, but they don't per se mind it. But they they know that I do this because I go home to my family and, and we have family time and it takes care of them and, and I'm a good provider or whatever. And so their why is their family. and that And that's fine if that works for you. Other people's why is, I do this thing because I'm helping other people. And, um, and really that's what it came down to for me was like, I love the dogs, but what do we do? We help people be more secure in their families, in their, in their lives, be more, uh, have more security, right? Is I provide you a creature who can do something that you can't do and is more willing to do it than you are. And all you have to do is point them in the direction and give them the command. And then you don't have to pull the trigger. And, and, you know, a lot of our, our female clients, even though they, you know, a lot of them carry concealed and a lot of them have gone to shooting courses and stuff. When you start asking them questions, they're like, yeah, I probably wouldn't actually shoot that guy. Yeah. And it's like, and then he would rape you. Yeah. And it's like, however, what they will do is they'll put their dog on watch and the dog starts barking. And then if the person keeps approaching or doesn't leave them alone, they just let go of the lead and the dog goes and, and tears the person up. Dog, and you're uh, doing what the dog's trained to do. <laughs> yeah. You know? And uh, and they're willing to do that, but they're not willing to pull a trigger because yeah. yeah and in and, and all reality, the dog is less lethal. Now it's it's gonna maim somebody if you use it, but I and that's why I always tell people you only deploy your dog if you had justification to shoot that person. Yeah, because in yeah. theory, the dog could kill them, but even if they don't, they're you're looking at serious injury on these people because it's that's their job is to end a threat. And how do you end a threat against a predator? Predators use force. You have to bring more force than they're willing to bring, and you have to do it. But that became the purpose for for me was people need security in their lives. This is how I help people. And it, so it started off as like an obsession with the dogs. It turned into I do this because this is how I help people. This is my way of giving back to people. And um, and then we run our, our training classes here locally, which – they, they technically make me a little money, but for the work that I put into them, they don't really make me much money. But it's the way like we've built the kind of like a small little community of people here. And it's like I can't abandon them now. Like 
they they come and they train with their dogs and it's partly social for them, but also like their dog would be out of control if they didn't come and do training with us every week. Yeah, and I will tell anybody that's thinking about adding a Malinois to your life, know this. It is work. Yes. Belle's a great dog, but I had Charlie five times better than her at half her age. Right. Right, because he yep. was much more, you know, pit mix, but the bird dog in him, the, the I want to do what you want. Right. Right. Or the Mallee's more like, I want to do something. Yeah. And if you're not going to give me something – I'm going to make something, right? Yeah. I'm going to make something to do. And yeah, and I tell people when we're doing our deliveries that all the time, I'm like, the, what? where a lot of people run into problems with the Mallies, and, and our lines are a little different. I was watching some idiot talk about, oh, if you want a Malinois, you're basically, what was the person he said? You're basically going, oh, you're getting a David Goggins, and you're taking a David Goggins off the shelf, and you got to run 20 miles a day with him. I'm like, I don't know what the hell you're breeding. But my dogs aren't like that at all. Now, if you don't, like you just said, if you don't give them something to do, don't they will sense. find something to do. But what, <laughs> what we do a lot is the thing to do is go to that spot and lay down. And you're going to stay there. And so you have, it takes discipline, right? So you have to be consistent and disciplined to make them do it. But yeah. before long, they're like, okay, this is my job right now. My job is to lay on this bed and not to get up until my yeah. person tells me the next thing to do. And so yeah. it, it can be obedience things, but it better be something. Like yeah. I tell people, do not let your dog roam your house until it is at least two years old and probably more like three years old. Yeah, we because, keep a leash on her all times. So if she starts yep. going ape shit, you step on the leash. That yep. made everything better. I was very proud of her the other day, though. I was working with her on weight, and I had her sitting on the couch, and I told her to wait. And I'll walk to where she can't see me mm-hmm. because that's when it's really challenging. And I came yeah. back around the half wall, and she was she was going to get down, and all I said was, ah. Yep. And her front paws were off the couch, and her ass was on the couch, and she sat but with her front feet off, like, oh, I better yep. stay. And that was like, okay, we're really starting to understand. When I say wait, you mean – and that does help. And, like, I know we're off the main topic, but, like, you know, take them for a walk. Yeah. Like, what I, what I realized at some point was, like, there were times I had to go do something. Mm-hmm. And I should take her with me. But yeah. she's going to make it harder for right. me to do the thing. Especially in the beginning, right? But if I don't do it, it will always be that way. In a lot of ways, it's like training an employee. You've yeah. had employees. There is no employee unless you're hiring extremely experienced for an exact fit where your first two weeks are easier because you hired somebody. Oh, it's usually two or three months they're not. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got to hope that once I get them competent, they don't quit and leave. Because they're like, right. I deserve more money now. Well, no, you, you, it's, I liken it with, with employees. This is why I got out of having them. It's like a chicken with a feed debt, mm-hmm. right? So if that chicken was like a modern person, she'd give you that first egg and be like, okay, I gave him an egg. He's been good to me for six months or whatever. But by the second week of laying eggs, she'd be like, all I get is this little bit of chicken feed every day. Yeah. And I give you an egg every day. And that egg's worth, you know, 50 cents. And I'm getting two cents worth of chicken feed. I fed fed you and you gave me nothing for uh, for 22, 24 weeks. And by the way, you're going to molt. Right. And that's like the extended vacation. Right. You're going to molt in August and I'm going to get nothing for six weeks. And I still have to feed you for those six weeks. Yep. And I know that sounds like you're really belittling an employee when you say that. But you you'll you'll change your mind when you start signing paychecks. 
Yes. Right? Like, he will change your mind about that when you are paying for somebody to exist and they're not yet capable. And, yeah, when you become competent, that's what I paid you for in the first place. And you're going to take time before you move up the ladder. Like, I think that's another problem people have that, that take the employee route. They expect to be a CEO in two years or something. Oh, right. But you're not going to be. Yep. Well, it, it 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 sounded like it was kind of off topic, but I think it really comes full circle back around because so I when I started the business, I made the decision I'm never going to have actual employees. I will have contractors. I will contract people to do certain jobs or I will have agreements where you do this work. And then when the dog sells, you get a percentage of the sale price yeah. for the for the time and energy that you put into it. But what I have seen and, and I, I do internships where people can come and intern and we've got a, a girl that's interning with us right now. And my experience with most interns is they go, I want to learn this thing. And you go, all right, come out and jump into training with us. And I, I used to be like, you have to do a six month contract and blah, blah, blah. Now I'm just like, you know what? It, it was the, the whole uh, poverty versus prosperity mindset. I'm like, come out and it's just going to be baptism by fire. I'm going to throw you in a bite suit and I'm going to deploy dogs on you. And if you make it the first week, then we might be able to, to get a little bit of time out of this. And um, But what I find is after like two months, they think they know what they're doing. And then they're like, yeah, yeah, well, I could do what you're doing. And I'm like, well, if you think so, knock yourself out. Go give it a try. And uh, and then inevitably, the people who actually try and move in that direction, within six months, they're at, they're gone. They're out of business. They've moved on to do other things. Because they realized, oh, there was all these other things that I didn't understand. And and even when you try and help them, I had an intern a couple months ago that he was running a successful uh, board and train business. And he was keeping about six or seven dogs at a time, uh, making pretty good money. Like they just off his income, they were able to buy, actually buy a house, which is like, you know, pretty decent if you're making enough income that you're claiming on taxes to be able to get a loan to buy a house. Yeah. And um and so he was doing that, and then he wanted to get into the bite work stuff. So he came out. He started doing bite work. I started teaching him how to do some stuff. And then he was like, okay, I think I can do this full time. And I'm like, well, let me just give you a little piece of advice. What I would do if I were in your situation, because I kind of was. Like, this is how I built the business to do what I do now. I didn't always primarily make my money off the fully trained dogs. It was like anybody who would pay me for anything with dogs, I did in the beginning, right? Yeah. And um, I, I was like, increase your board and train by at least 50%, if not double your price, because he had a waiting list, right? And I'm like, yeah. if you have people waiting, you're not charging enough. Yeah. And um, and then you can cut your workload by 50% or in half. And then once your your workload is less, you'll have more time to dedicate to what we're doing. I'll give you a couple puppies to train up. You train them. And when you sell them, you keep 80% and I get 20%. And I was like, if you do that, you'll successfully make this transition. If you don't do it, it's not going to work. Yeah. So like two weeks later, he comes back. I shut the business down, blah, blah. I'm like, all right, that doesn't sound like a very good idea to me. But and uh, and then within two months, he was like in a panic because they didn't have any money to pay their mortgage and blah, blah, blah. And he was running around trying to do all this stuff. And then poof, he's gone. Right. And it's like, well, you, you try and help him. But it, it kind of comes back to that. If you're passionate, you're willing to suffer for a thing. Willing to suffer if you want to transition from one thing to another means there's a transition period. You have to be smart about what you do. And 
if you're transitioning and you make a mistake, it's easier to recover. If you burn the ships and you make a mistake, well, you might starve to death. And, um, and so, it, and it also, like we were talking about before, it lets you see as you're moving toward that thing, do you really want to do this thing? Or did you just want to do this thing you perceived it was, but then as you started to actually get into it, you realize it wasn't actually what you thought it was going to be. And maybe this thing that you want to do actually is just a slight tweak off of that. And then you're, you're happy doing this. But, you know, it kind of comes, if you're willing to do the work to be the employee that you need to be, to learn the thing that you need to learn, to do the thing that you ultimately want to do, you're probably going to get it done. But if yeah. you're not willing to make that whole circular process, then you're probably, you know, you're either going to be the person who constantly tries and fails or the person who never starts. I would also say like one of the important things is to figure out the things you absolutely do not want to do and yes. either build a business that doesn't require them or hire yep. somebody to do the things that you don't want to do. Yep. And, and to be animate about, I don't want to do now beginning of a business, you're going to do a lot of shit. You do not want to do. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about right. long-term operational planning in the business. If you don't want to sweep the floors, hire somebody to sweep the floor. Yep. Um, I don't do, in general, consulting. I might yep. do it on rare occasions for rare people, you know. But, like, I had somebody today who wanted to pay me $500, real email, for one hour on the phone helping them design their life. This is a person that said two years ago they were penniless and they were in debt. Now they're making 140 grand a year and paying their debt off. Number one, I don't think you need me. Yeah. Right. Number one, I don't think you need me. I think you're on the right track. Number two, this is the more important reason. I hate this. Right. I don't like this position because I already know I'm going to sit down. I'm going to I'm not going to put an hour into it. You know that I'm going to put in four. Yep. I'm going to come back with a very complete plan for this person. I'm going to get them totally on board with it. They're going to do 10 percent of it. And then they're going to bitch that they don't get the results that I right. said they would get. Well, of course you didn't. Right. And I, you know, there's two ways to handle this. I don't care. I did my job. Give me my money and I'm happy. Right. And if you're that person, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not putting it down. But if you're me, you're like, OK, now I'm miserable. Right. Now I'm and even more. Five hundred bucks is not worth the misery. Yep. Because I could have done something I wanted to and made a thousand dollars. Right. That's what people yep. come to me like, will you write sales copy for me? Fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah. Well, I'll pay it. $25,000. Like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. I when I do private lessons, people yeah. are like, hey, I have this dog that's aggressive and I want to come to your class. I'm like, you can't come to my class with an aggressive dog. We have to do private lessons first. How much are they? $300 an hour. Yeah. And if too many people say, I'll do it for $300 an hour, it goes to $500 an hour and then yeah. $700 an hour because I do not want to do it. So I'm going to charge you enough that if you go, yes, I'll go, damn it. But hey, it's 700 bucks. So it's worth doing. Because just like you said, you know, they think, oh, they show up for an hour and you train with them. Well, I've got to figure out, you know, what am I going to do with this dog? Like, what, what did I do? I mean, the, my first question is, what did I not do yeah. that I could have been doing instead? One yep. is, well, how much would that have made me? There's a yep. crate. But there's also like, well, what if what I was going to do was I actually had an hour this week to fuck off. I was going to drink a whiskey on my patio and watch my ducks play. Well, you could have made a hundred bucks for that. Yeah, but I didn't want to do it. Right. Yeah. I wanted some downtime in my life and now I've given up my downtime because all my other professional commitments, now that I'm accommodating your special need, I still have to do all the rest of the things. Right. Yeah. 
And I see that all the time. I think it's a big mistake entrepreneurs make. In the beginning, you will do work for experience. Like you said, you did. Somebody brought a dog problem. I'll work with it because I need money. Once you get successful, you have to put boundaries up. And one of my big beliefs is successful people say no often, far more than they say yes. And I see guys like the one dude I follow on TikTok. He makes these beautiful tables, like resin board and all. And he does these videos where, like, he he mocks the phone call that comes in, like, yeah, how much are you going to charge me for that? $15,000. Well, you're ripping me off. Well, then don't get one. Yeah. You know, it, it turns out his wife is the one that really wanted it, and she calls, and he ends up selling them the same 20, table for 20 because you've already been a problem. Yes. He's like, you want to know how many tables that I make? I make about one a month. Yeah. I make one a month, and I don't yeah, want to make 10 a month. Right. You know? And yeah, I, I think as you develop success, like, don't let what we're saying right now is what I'm kind of sending out to the person that's just getting started make you a, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but like a prima donna before you can afford to be one, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a it, point where you have to, like, you do whatever you have to, you build to a certain level, and you start saying no more until you right. get to the point where, like, okay, now I'm established, I've got a brand, I've got a customer base, I've got an yes. income that's reliable. I have to be very, even if I want to grow, I have to be very careful about yep. what I take on so that these this five more hours I'm going to put in this week benefits me. Otherwise, right. why am I doing it? And that was what? a mistake I made with this early on. I said yes to everything. Right. And it was a fucking disaster. It really was. Yeah, it, it, if you're going to burn out, it's because you're saying yes to everything. Yeah. And it, it's yeah. a difficult transition to make. So when I first started full-time – we we were buying puppies from the place that I started training and I was getting them on consignment. So I worked at a deal with them where I get the puppies, I train them up, I sell them. And when I sell them, I come and I pay you for the puppy that you loaned me basically. And I get another puppy. And so we had like a psych, a circular cycle of, of dogs coming in. Right. And then yeah. they got a business consultant who was like, you can sell dogs for like twice what you're selling, blah, blah. He had all these great things. And uh, and ultimately, what they ended up doing was telling all of us who had trained with them for years, hey, if you don't sign this 15 page non-compete, we can't work with you anymore. And we all went, we're already paying. You know, we feed our families with these businesses. We can't do that unless you're guaranteeing us work, which yeah. they couldn't do. And so it was it was mostly friendly, but it was like, well, you guys do your thing and I'll do mine. And so I had to start breeding. Right. Yeah. And so I start breeding. And initially, I'm selling puppies for five hundred dollars a piece. Well, then you sell all the puppies that you, you want to sell for $500 a piece and they go to 750 And oh, by the way, this was on Craigslist, right? It was like, and Craigslist, you're not supposed to sell puppies. So yeah. it was like, I, I would have to figure out how to get around their little system where you put the ad up, but you don't say how much they are. And yeah. you wait till there's like 30 texts that have come in. Yeah. And then you start replying because the minute you reply to the first text, it's going to get banned. Yeah. And out of those 30, you'll get like four that are interested. Yeah. And then you, you put the ad back up again. So that was, it started off at 500, then it went to 750, then it was a thousand, then it was 1500, then it was 2500. Now our puppies are $3,000 a piece. And when people are like, that's too expensive, I'm like, okay, you get what you pay for. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. when you were mentioning that, it, you know, so you start off doing whatever you can do to get things rolling and to build a reputation and a, and a brand that, that people actually recognize. And then we started running uh, Facebook ads where we bring it brings in leads via the Facebook, um, the, the ad that's running. Right. And I get this guy the other day 
And he's like, well, how much do they cost? And so I, I sent him the, the link to the site with the descriptions of the price, dogs and the prices for each one. And he goes, $30,000? I'd never invest more than $10,000 in a dog. I was like, okay, we have puppies available for $3,000. He's yeah. like, well, I want it fully trained. And I said, great, we have those for $30,000. <laughs> and it was like, which yeah. one do you want, buddy? Yeah. And, yeah. and and initially he said something like, well, why why do they cost $30,000? I'm like, how much would you want to be paid for 18 months worth of work? And, and yeah. so you get to the point where you start off doing whatever it takes because it's it's like, you know, these young kids who think I should be paid $40 an hour right out of college. It's like you're not worth $40 an hour. When you, you start doing you do? this. What right. do you do for forty dollars an hour, right? Why well, show when up? You start doing a business. Yeah, you're doing the thing full time, but you're still not that good at it. Like, yeah, you, you might be better than the person who you're you're servicing, but you're not. You haven't built up this reputation. It's like the old welder who went for a job interview, and they they asked him to do a, a test weld, and yeah. he makes this gorgeous, perfect, beautiful weld. Yeah, and he says, "I'm one hundred and twenty dollars an hour," and they go. Well, we're hiring at $60 an hour. And he goes, yeah. bring me another piece of steel. And he does a shitty weld. Yeah. And he goes, that's what you get for $60 an hour. Which yeah. one do you want to hire? The $60 yeah. an hour or the $120 an hour person? So you're legitimately not worth the money in the beginning when you start. But then as you get better and as your worth increases, then you have to recognize you're worth more now. And then you have to start saying no. I'm not doing that for less than what I'm worth. Yeah. And now you uh, had something in there that you glossed right over that I think is a really important thing. And it was the way you were manipulating Craigslist. And what it made me think of is how many times you tell somebody something and they go, well, you can't do that. And my response is generally, no, you can't do that. Yeah. Right. Don't tell me what I can't do. I will figure some way out to do the yep. thing. Well, you can't sell puppies on Facebook uh, Craigslist. No, you, you can't, can't sell. I sold thousands of dollars worth of yeah. puppies on Craigslist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we did multiple things. So we would do the, we put the ad up and we described the dogs and rehoming contact us for details. Here's my, my phone number to text me at. And then the, we, I would wait like five or six days till I had like 20 or 30 responses come in. And then yeah. I'd go through and start replying to them. And then of course it'd get kicked off. So yeah. then I'd make it, I'd wait a couple of days, I'd make another ad. Well, then I decided, you know, let me try something different because I noticed on Craigslist, there were a lot of people selling dog houses and I make a kind of a specific dog house. That's one sheet of plywood. It's easy to find online, but not a lot of people yeah. make them. And they're real sturdy. They're three quarter inch plywood. You take one sheet of plywood, you cut it and screw it together. I and see where this is going. It lasts forever. Right? So I said, dog houses for sale. You get a free puppy when you buy one. How much are your dog houses? Fifteen hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, now that didn't do much better than the other ones. They still like would you know kick it off and blah blah blah. Yeah. But I sold probably ten, twenty puppies before I, I quit you know running that option on it. And yet there's, it's like when we started homeschooling and people said, "Are you allowed to do that?" And I'm like, "I'm not asking." Like I don't care if somebody who has no authority to tell me I can or can't says I can't. That'd be like some stranger saying, you're not allowed to do that. Why would I listen to that person? Well, and this is important that people understand how something this subtle can yeah. be a lot of money. So back when I was doing the corporate thing and I was working with Neil Franklin, one of our companies was called Syrian. And we did basically wireless optimization service work for 
companies like AT&T, et cetera. And we had a pending contract with AT&T. And it was basically a software, which they considered a product, right? And we're trying to close the deal, and we can't get the deal closed. And one of the salespeople come back and say, well, I finally figured out what the problem is. They don't have the money in their budget. I'm like, it's AT&T. No, no, the department we're selling to doesn't have their money in the budget for for a product. They don't have a – their product budget is gone for the year. Right. Change the line item to software services. Let okay. them take it out of their service budget. Oh, it can't be that simple. Okay. I don't like doing this. But is your name on the door? No. Change the line item. Take it back to your contact and make the suggestion. All they can say is no. Two days later, we closed the deal. It was a million and a half dollars. Yep. By adding a word to the description so yep. the client could call it a service versus a product, which technically it could have been either. Yeah. But yeah. by willing to and, and the guy that made the huge commission didn't want to do it. Yep. Until he did it. You know? Until he did it. Right. <laughs> Until he did it and it worked. And all of a sudden, well, yep. this is. Yeah. And well, so one of the things. Go ahead. I was going to say that little tiny thing. You talk about using to sell a dog for three hundred or five hundred dollars. Yep. Was that same mentality was used to close a million and a half dollar purchase order yep. with a Fortune one hundred brand. Well, and you know most of the businesses. So a lot of people look at somebody who's doing a homestead and they're selling eggs and and chickens and pigs and whatever, and they go, I want to do that. And yeah. it's, there's nothing wrong with looking at what somebody's doing and saying that looks like a good deal to me. I want to mimic that. But most of your businesses that are really big are people who are doing something that either no one is doing or hardly anyone is doing. And in every one of those situations, just about maybe there's like a very few that this wouldn't apply to. In every one of those situations, you have to break the rules because if the rules weren't there, other people would already be doing it. Yes. But everybody looks and goes, we can't do that, whatever the that is, because, and, and most of them are these unspoken social rules, right? Yeah. Is, is, you know, people would look down on us or people wouldn't like us or whatever. And then until somebody comes along and does it. Yeah. And makes a lot of money doing it. And then everybody else goes, oh, okay, yeah. well, that rule no longer applies, I guess. Or the person that wouldn't do it say they ripped off my idea. Oh right. yeah, all the one you never I had that idea, right? You know, yeah, of course they they heard you talking about it on your cell phone and stole it from you, man. See, but yeah. when you were talking about like you see the person doing the thing, so you want to do the thing. I wonder how much of that goes back to what we talked about earlier with like the eighteen year olds, like their dream career as a social media influencer. Right? Do yep. you not understand how much work goes into that success, or maybe how limited the success is? So yeah. I'm not big on 47-page business plans or something like that. But when I do talk to people about, like, a business model, where's your spreadsheet? I don't yeah. have one. Don't, you're not ready to talk to me yet. You're not ready to talk to me for five minutes. Yep. And so because once they make the spreadsheet on costs and, and the product and the volume, then you can say, well, how many of these do you think you can sell a month? 30. Okay, stick that in there. Now, there's your profit. Yep. Is that and enough to live on? Because yep. if it's not – you either need to increase your profit or your volume. Yep. Or right? cut your costs. And, and if you look at it that way, a lot of times you'll look at a business and go, there's not enough money here. Yeah. Sometimes you can fix that. Again, charging more, doing more volume, whatever. But if you're, if you're optimistic numbers, 
result in a number that doesn't make you as much money as saying, hello, welcome to Walmart, here's your shopping cart. Yep. You need a new plan. Yeah, you better really love what you're doing to do it for less than minimum wage. Yeah. Or you, uh, you yeah, you need to adjust some things. And um, what are your what are your thoughts on scaling, Joe? Joe, because that's what we're kind of hitting on there. Like businesses either scale or they don't, right? Mm-hmm. And you can and when I say scale, I'm actually talking about increasing business because one way to handle it is to do like the guy that makes one table a month, right? Right? Like you know he probably has four grand of materials. Sells a table for 15 grand and it's a part time business for him. He's yeah. good. He yeah. doesn't want to make 50 tables. But yeah, if you really want to scale a business, you either have to make more money per unit or you have to make more units. There, there's yeah. really no third way. So I look at it. So we, when I set up the business, um, I initially started off, we were running dog training classes. So that I kind of always held on to. Right. So I've always offered some kind of an option to come and and do training. And then we started selling the dogs. And then when we started breeding, I was like, well, a litter of puppies is like eight to 12 puppies. Like I only need four. So I might as well sell these extra puppies. And so that kind of so the business kind of naturally divided into three things, the dog training, the puppy sales and the trained dog sales. And um, and then what I realized is. I, I don't want to become a puppy mill, right? Because I only I'm only going to breed for me, and then after I breed for me, there's going to be some excess, and we'll sell those puppies. But because they're limited, it increases the value of them after more and more people realize they're good lines. And then so where we can scale in terms of more product is the Canine Academy side of things, which me you know you help me out with, and we're still developing and working and tweaking and modifying the website and all this and. Um, and so we've got that going on where it's essentially infinite and because it's an online product, right? So we basically what I did was I filmed myself doing all of the training on dogs from starting a puppy all the way through off-lead obedience. And then we we filmed it and, and it's there's a lot of information. Like the dogs will be doing something and I'm like, you see what this dog is doing right here? This is what they're communicating to you. This is how you need to work the dog, blah, blah, blah. So if you took that course and you were observant, you could actually start your own training, like doing your own personal training with people if you wanted to. But um, and that is what we're focusing on getting uh, expanding out in terms of I want, you know, 100,000 people on Canine Academy. Now, when it comes to my dogs, I don't want anything anywhere close to that. So what we just did in January was our prices all went up. So last year, if you bought a puppy from me, it was twenty five hundred dollars. As of yeah. January 1st, it was three thousand. Last year, you could get a personal protection dog for $20,000. As of January 1st, it was $30,000. Last year, our family protection dogs were $40,000. Now they're fifty. And so our prices went up. And you know what happened? I've sold more trained dogs this year than I've ever sold. And I, I sell, I've sold more trained dogs than I've sold puppies this year. Yeah. So yeah. The, uh, like our, we're, the problem, so I tell people this sometimes, the problem with setting goals is, if you don't actually plan to accomplish the goal, accomplishing the goal might put you in a bad position. Sure. So in, in this between Christmas and New Year's every year is my kind of like, what are our annual goals for next year planning time? Right. And we said we wanted to sell 20 dogs this year. And in the first six months, we sold 10 dogs. And I was like, holy shit, we're out of dogs. Like I didn't have 20 dogs to sell. Yeah. I had 12. And I've yeah. sold 10 of the 12 
Yeah. And so now we've got to like keep most of the puppies from our next several litters coming in so that we've got dogs to sell that yeah. are coming up. Yeah. And, um, and so it's the, you can scale by increasing your, your fees, which, you know, also means that your product has to match that sale price, right? So if I'm charging fifteen to twenty thousand dollars for a protection dog, that's like the lowest cost in the industry. So yeah. you can kind of get away with a little bit of, well, it's not quite as good as this guy charging seventy five thousand dollars because I'm like less than a third the price. But yeah. it, the minute you go up in price, you got to make sure. Like we've always tried to make sure our dogs were as good as we can make them. Yeah. But now it's like that pressure's on, right? Like you've got to really make sure that you're delivering on what you're saying you're delivering on. So some people will avoid raising their prices because they don't want the pressure of making the product equal to the price that they're charging for it. And, um, but you either have to do that because I don't want like 20 is my max. Like I can't train more than 20 dogs in a year and have them be the quality that they need to be. To go for, yeah. home. And so what we do is we just increase our prices as we sell out. So if we sell out, we're like, okay, well, they're, they're more now. They cost more. And, uh, and then because I'm not producing more puppies just to produce puppies, we kind of do the same thing with puppies. Well, if I'm selling all the puppies I want at 3000, I guess they need to be 3500 now. Yeah. And, um, you're not going to overbreed your females. You're, you're just not going to do that. And right. Yep. I, I try and give my females a rest in between heat cycles and, and, uh, or between breedings. So they get at least one heat cycle rest. And, and usually it's two, sometimes three. And then I try not to breed them more than say four times in a lifetime. If I have a really amazing solid, you know, pairing, I might do a fifth breeding with them. Um, but you know, I want, all of our dogs are working dogs and I want my females to be working dogs too. Yeah. They, they want to work. They, they don't like to just sit around, even when they're taking care of their pups and they, you know, they're protective over their pups and all that kind of stuff. They're still like, I want to get out and do stuff. Like I want to go and do bite work and, you know, track and do the obstacles and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and so to me, it's not fair to just breed a female every time she comes into heat and just so that I have puppies to sell. I, yeah. I don't need to sell puppies. I just want them to have good homes when I have extra ones. With the price raising, too, what you're hitting on there is something called a pricing curve. Mm-hmm. So let's say you sold protection dogs for $2,000. Anybody with a brain would say never, ever buy a protection dog from Joel Riles. Because if you're selling a dog for $2,000, it's supposed to be fully trained. It isn't. Right. right? So people think, like, the cheaper you price a thing, the more you'll sell. Not necessarily if the price is cheap enough to, to infer an inferior value, right. then you'll sell less. And as you increase your price, you'll sell more, 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 and you'll peak. You'll hit a point where you sell the maximum you will ever sell based on price. And people yep. think, well, that's where I want to price my item. The fuck you do. You absolutely do not want to price at the peak. You increase, increase, increase until the number of sales declines just a little bit on the backside of the peak. Yep. That's the astute high end customer who is the least pain in the ass. The yep. people that pay the peak but won't pay the little bit more, that one person will cost you more time than ten other customers. Yep. I don't care if it's a dog or a paperclip. Yeah. It's the same thing. That's it's getting past the Karen's. Like once you go to the backside of the curb, you don't want to fall off because then eventually, like if you're charging a million dollars a dog, yeah, you, you might, might find one dumbass who will do it, right? That has the money and not the brains. Um, but in general, there'll be a point where it it plummets and it's yep. right on that backside. 
That is yep. the sweet spot to price something, and it's the number one way to scale. It's easier to just serve the same amount of people and get more money. Yeah. If I want to serve more people, especially in a product business, and a dog is a product, right, yep. then I have to put more work in to make more product. But you're right, and that's why when we when you were out here last year, I'm like, no, Canine Academy is where you need to put your, your main growth focus yeah, yeah. because it scales seamlessly. Right. Right. You might have to answer like I can't log in or something, but overall it's yeah, a yeah. it's a soft product. It's delivered electronically. If you have a thousand people by tomorrow, they all get the same thing. Right. The quality does not decline because the yeah. customer count went up. So you either scale by increasing profit or you scale by increasing customer. Yep. And if you're going to do it by increasing customer, you 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 can do that in a very linear way. If you're going to do it by increasing product, you have to put a lot more planning into that. And do I really want to do this? Because could you do it? Sure. And the way the way it works is you expand your kennels and you hire yeah. more people and hire people. And, and then are they going to do the same variables and variables are problems. Yep. Yep, exactly. Like I love having interns because I can have one or two interns and I can watch over everything that they do and I can still be hands on everything that's happening. If yeah. I had five trainers and because uh, in, in order to have a contractor, you can't set their schedule. Right. So if I'm going to have yeah. somebody working for me as a as a contractor, not an employee, I can't say you have to be here at this time to this time every day. These days, every week, blah, blah, they have to be able to set their own schedule. Yeah. And so, you know, one or two people doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I can like make sure I'm doing my thing. I'm coming to check in on you. And yeah. like you said, maybe one day a week where they have to come in and like demonstrate that they're, there's, you know, meeting their milestones or whatever. But, um, yeah, it, when you get a point where I don't want to sell any more than I'm selling, what I want to do is make what I'm doing better, streamline it better. Uh, add value in some other way and then charge more for it. And I want to add value in a way that's a little bit of work for me and a lot of value. And, um, and, and you, things like that happen. Like I remember talking to my uncle who, uh, he does rodeo, right? And, and he was like Alabama state rodeo champion for years and years. He's in his early seventies. He's like 72 and he still ropes. Like oh, he's wow. still in the roping circuit and uh, he's kind of like my hero, right? He's like, I want to be doing that when I'm in my seventies, I want to still be doing bite work. And, um, and so, but I asked him one time cause he has like six horses that he keeps and you know, they're all like high end horses. Right. And I said, well, how much do you pay for a horse for a month? He goes, I pay $400 a month per horse. He goes, but you can't do that. And uh, I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, I know the guy who does shoeing. And he does it for this for me, but everybody else, he does it for that. And wow. I know the people who do this type of hay, and they'll do it for this for me, but they won't do that for anybody else. And so because he'd been in it so long and he'd built so many connections and he had so many little uh, things that he had figured out how to get what he needed without having to pay the, the retail price per se, he was able to get his cost per horse down to $400 a month, whereas it's like, Twelve to sixteen hundred dollars a month for everybody else, and we started learning that in our business. Like when when I had enough dogs that I had to order a pallet of dog food every two to three weeks, I called Victor, the company that we we get our that you know makes our dog food, and I said, "How do I become a distributor?" Yeah. And they were like, "Well, this is the company that distributes for us in this area. You get on their list, and then you buy essentially wholesale from them." And I was like, "All right." So I put in the application, and now I get like 
10 to $15 a bag off and I buy 20 bags of dog food every like three weeks and they bring it in on a pallet and we bring it in and we stack it in our area and we go through about a bag of dog food every day and a half. Same with us with the ducks. We buy a ton of yep. food uh, three times a year. Yep. My, and when I say a ton, I mean a literal actual 2,000 pounds of food yep. at a time. Right. Yep. And, and when we, okay, it's more money out of pocket per purchase, but it saves us thousands of yep. dollars a year. Thousands, not hundreds, thousands. Yeah. You know? And you have to get to a certain point before you can do that. But yeah. once you can, I don't know if it qualifies as scaling, but it definitely qualifies as cutting costs. Well, you're scaling like, your purchasing side, right? So yeah. you have two sides of your balance sheet. You have your income and your expense. And scaling yep. your expense is the exact opposite. You want the expense per unit to go down. Right. And you want the profit and revenue per unit to go up. Yep. So you you scale in reverse on, on, on the outbound side. So that almost inevitably means every individual check you write, and sometimes it's a, you know, we use a credit card, but metaphor check, every check you write will be a, a bigger check, but the total outflow per annuum declines. Yeah. And there's a, it's, it's, that's so simple to understand, but a person who's never run a business literally has been wired in a way where when you explain it, they get it. Right. But what's the first thing they do? Come up with a reason they can't. Right. Right. So if something's going to save you thousands of dollars a year, I bet you can figure out how to do it. But like you said, until there's enough, until there's enough inflow of the product yeah. you're, you're purchasing, you can't really do it. Because if you try to do that with like if I told these people that I'm buying this, this duck food, I want to come up there and buy three bags. Right. They would say, well, they're twenty seven dollars a bag. I'm paying eleven. Yeah. Right. I'm paying less for the premium feed than you can get Purina for right now. Yep. But we drive 90 miles to do it, which is why we buy it a, a literal ton at a time. Yep. Yeah, and as long as you can store it and it doesn't go bad, yeah. like we uh, the very first set of food we bought, we stacked it wrong. Okay. Right? So I stacked you it the way. that shit too, right? Yeah, exactly, right? So I stacked it the way you stack a pallet where you put one sideways and then one long ways. And, yeah. then, and then they're laying on top of each other. But the only way you get to the bottom is to go all the way down the stack right well yeah. when more food comes in you you stack it in front and then you can never get to the stuff in the back yeah and so we uh we were like you know we should get back there and check those bags this is like after we've had them for six months or whatever yeah they're moldy. Sure enough, some of the bags had gone moldy and yeah. so i was like all right we got to fix this so now we stack them in a line and we go through one full line before we start working off the next, next line. line yeah and then when this line is empty we order food again yeah. So as soon as we start this line, food has been ordered. It comes in. It gets all stacked in the empty spot. And then when this line's empty, we order food again. Yeah, we and have our own thing. We have three pallets that we put up against the wall. And when we're down to like 15% of what we buy, we get another load in. We pull all that off. We yeah. stack the next level. And then when we put the bags on that are the older bags, we put them upside down so the label's backwards. And so that way we know to always out. pull those first. But it doesn't matter how you do it. It matters that you yeah. do it. And the yeah, funny thing is when it's your money, you'll do it. Yes. You might not figure it out the first time, but you will figure it out. And then you will follow the system because it's your exactly. money. Yep. And developing systems is critical. Like, you know, when it comes to like your advertising on social media, a lot of people, 
you know, look at, well, you know, I can't be on all these social media platforms. And, and I love John, but John pays two dudes, like, I don't know how many thousands of dollars a month to manage his social media for him. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. But, you know, he'll say things like, okay, you do, uh, you do YouTube and then you got to restart the video over again when you put it on Instagram and then use the fresh video again when you do TikTok because they know when you cross use. Well, I'm sure they do. But you know what? I am not going to commit. I, I won't say I couldn't do it because I could, but I have certain amount of time designated each day to do social media. Yeah. And I'm not dedicating more time than I have dedicated to it. So I do my Instagram post and then I copy the text from that post and it creates the new video with the, if any text that you put on top of the video, yeah. and it saves it on your camera roll. And then that video goes on all the other platforms and I just paste, 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 paste the, the write up in it. And it goes on everything. Cause what I found in general is people who are really into TikTok don't care about Instagram that much. No, people who are really in Instagram aren't Facebookers. No, it's like there's a group of people on each of these platforms that like that platform and they might occasionally go to the other places, but it's not like they're going, Oh, I see the same thing from this guy everywhere I go. They're not everywhere. They're on their, their preferred platform that they like. And then, so there's to, to my mind and the way that we do things, I have spent very little money until recently. I've never paid for advertising. We just mm. recently started paying for some Facebook advertising to bring in more leads and just see what happens. And um, but everything is run on word of mouth from clients, uh, a website, and posting on. And when I started, it was just Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, and we've expanded out to these others. But it was like, how do I expand out to these others without spending two hours a day doing social media? Because I've got to do a Fortress K9, a Fortress K9 puppies, and a uh, K9 Academy post every day. I got you. So is this, uh, does this post to social media for you? Yeah, no, it doesn't post. Well, it can, I guess. I'm just learning how to use it. But this is a new thing that I started using the cold sauce termy onto it. It's called Opus, O-P-U-S dot pro. Let me see if that's the URL. Yeah, Opus dot pro. This is awesome, and it's a way to leverage time if you do long-form content. So all I do is take my long-form videos and drop them in here. And I dropped an hour and 30 minute video in there yesterday. It made me 25 shorts for like TikTok, Instagram. I posted two of them already. They need a little bit of playing with, yeah. but it, it, you know, I got two minutes per video of work into it now. And I'm like you, I'm going to put that. And it's called again, for people listening, if you're a long form producer, Opus Pro. Um, and I've only done it with one video so far, but I'm very impressed with it. I'm going to pay for the upgrade. Um, yeah. And, and but that's, that's Tim's leverage, Tim's. right? That's leverage yep. of time versus leverage of money. Yep. Well, because you, when, so when you start off, right, you're, you're taking anything anybody will give you. You're putting as much time as you can put into it to try and get it off the ground. You're uh, probably wasting money on things that you could get better deals on if you were to put more, you know, buy more at a time, which maybe you can't even afford to do initially. So you have all these kind of limitations. You just got to work with, you just got to make it work. But then as things get going, it seems like your priorities of things shift to, okay, now I want to make more money per unit. Okay. Now mm -hmm. I, I've got that going. Okay. Now I, I have this extra money coming in. I can start buying in bulk and make my cost go down. Correct. Okay, That's good. And then once you kind of get those things settled in, then you start going, I don't want like my one of my things on my podcast that I do when I, I give my cell phone number out on my podcast. 
but I always say, do not call me. You can text me at this yeah. number, but if yeah. you call me and I don't recognize the number, I will not pick up. And if you leave a voicemail, maybe in the next six weeks, I'll get to it. Yep. Maybe. Yeah. That's and, my rule. I have my phone set. If you're not a contact. Yeah. I don't even know the, the screen doesn't even light up. Yep. You go straight to voicemail and I probably look in there once every couple of weeks. Yeah. If and I don't hear to do it. I've got the other transcription. Like if it says fail to transcribe, that's a telemarketer. Delete. Yeah. If I look at it and it's like I read the first two sentences and I don't know what you want, delete. Oh. And people are like, well, you're a dick. And I'm like, well, I literally call myself a jerk, so that's okay with me. Right. But no, what I, I I value my time. And if you're a contact, I might answer it. I'm a complete ass with it. If your contact doesn't have a picture with it, yeah, I still don't answer it. That's how you're a real boy. Like it yep. rings and I look and I see Joel's face. Okay, I'll make that call if I have time. But yeah. if it's just like a random contact that's in there from some, I voicemail. Yep. Well, even my contacts. So even people who have contracts on dogs. Yeah. I tell them, do you want me to answer the phone or do you want me to train, train your, dog? your dog? Which one do you want? So don't call me. If yeah. we need to talk, send me a text. We will schedule a phone call. But there, I don't know if it's just because I'm older now. Yeah. I used to not mind talking on the phone, right? For like even long periods of time. Now yeah. I'm like, I do not want to talk to somebody on the phone if I can possibly help it. Like this face-to-face -face works and text. Like I want to either be standing in front of you talking or at least be able to see your face or I want you to send me a text. And if it's important enough for us to get on a phone call for, we'll schedule it. But that's kind of like the last thing, right, is you start valuing your time where it's like I'm not going to take my time of doing this thing that I want to do right now or maybe yeah. this thing that I need to do right now, right, for the, the stuff that needs to happen. I'm not going to break my concentration of I'm in the, the flow, if you will, of doing this job yeah. to stop and, and answer some number I don't know who it is because it could be a 30-second call or it could be a 30-minute call. Yeah. Yeah. And, or it could be just a telemarketer who's wasting my time, and now I've broken my my rhythm that I'm in. I'll give you some ways to guarantee you that you don't get on the phone with me. One is to send me an email that says you want to bend my ear or a phrase similar to that. That is – you're deleted. You're not even considered you're done. Or to tell me you need to talk to me about something, but you don't tell me what it is. Oh, yeah. Right? So you just sent me an email. You told me you needed to talk to me about something, and you're not like my best friend that I owe my life to or something. You're some person I don't even know. Right. And you, you, you have something you need to talk to me about, but you didn't tell me what it was. And I know full well if you told me what it was, I could probably help you in five minutes without ever talking to you. Yep. Or you don't want to tell me what it is because you know I probably don't want to talk to you about it. Yep. But terms like bend your ear, that is an absolute, I promise you, even <laughs> if I know you, I promise you, I'm probably not even going to get back to you. Yep. Right? Because, and, and it, it goes down to like, I try to explain to people, like, if you get a response to an email from, from, from for an email you sent me and it says something like, thank you for your kind words or check this link, consider yourself lucky. Yeah. Because if I spent, this is honesty, if I spent one minute a day, one minute per email per day of legitimate emails, answering emails, I wouldn't do anything else. Yeah. I, there's, there is no way that I would spend any more. I probably I've done the math before. It's like 12 to 14 hours 
yeah. is what I would spend if I gave every email one minute of my time. So I have to very quickly make a decision. Do I respond to this one? And that's not being a dick. If you're like, well, why don't you hire a PA? Because I'm not paying somebody to do that. Well, because because I've, I've run that work. program for 13 years and it hasn't hurt me. Yeah. Well, mean, and I guess the minute you hand stuff like that over to somebody else. Oh, then you get, well, hey, this guy emailed and ugh, that's not what I hired you to do. <laughs> Right. So what they'll do is they'll either think something's important that's not, and they'll end up giving you more work to do. Yeah. So I hired you to take work off my hands, and you gave me more. Gave work me more do. work. Or they'll ignore the actual important things, and then you're like, "What the hell? That was important. Like, why didn't I get that?" And and to train that person to do it right, again, you're looking at what two, four months yeah. of time, and, and which where you can just fly through it and go, "These are my important things. These are my yeah. not important things." And move on with the rest of my life. Yeah, I agree. So, hey, tell folks a little bit about your business. Uh, we've been on almost two hours here, so. Absolutely. Well, so we basically have three businesses. We have canineacademy.us. If you have a dog already, especially a dog that's uh, a little bit more high energy or a little bit more stubborn, um, then canineacademy.us is how we train all of our Malawas, Dutch Shepherds, and German Shepherd dogs. And so it's designed to take you from, holy crap, I just got this new puppy, what do I do? All the way through off-lead obedience in about a year if you can dedicate 15 to 20 minutes a day of, uh, of dedicated training time with your dog. And uh, so that's canineacademy.us. Um, then our primary business, at least in terms of where our primary money comes in right now, is Fortress Canine. And so what we do at Fortress Canine is we train protection dogs that are safe around your family, safe around your children, safe around your other pets. Um, we'll, if you uh, purchase multiple dogs from us, we'll deploy and work together as a team. And, um, and then the thing that really sets us apart from most of the people where I get most of the shit online from the other dog trainers is our dogs do not bite and hold. So uh, a police dog that's an apprehension dog, they want them to bite and hold in that spot. So whether they train them for a bicep, a forearm, a tricep, what they're doing is they're training dogs to bite a certain spot and then hold on that spot. And then um, so they come and apprehend, put handcuffs on that person. Right. The That's great for law enforcement because it causes less damage. But yeah. 12 to 20 law enforcement dogs every year get stabbed to death because the dog bites the bad guy. He draws a knife and just starts stabbing the dog, and the dog doesn't know what to do, and it stays on. So we train our dogs to, we call it reversing or retargeting. So if I try to strike one of my dogs while they're biting, they will release and retarget and hit the arm that I'm trying to strike with. Um, they will either learn to avoid legs if you're trying to kick or knee at them. The, they learn to avoid getting trapped between hard objects, like I'll bring them up to a vehicle or a tree, and I'll trap them. And then I let them learn, this is bad. Yeah. Don't let me trap you again. And real quick, they learn, okay, avoid that. Uh, we use things like muzzles for our more advanced dogs and teach them your collars are a liability. If you let me get a hold of your collars, I can do bad things to you. And so in a muzzle, I'll grab their collars and I'll throw them. And you do that once or twice, and that dog's like, you're not touching my collars again. And uh, and they either bite you in the hands or they dodge and, and weave out of yeah. the way. We try and get a hold of their collars. So that's where we differ from the, the sport world is our dogs don't just bite and hold on to one spot. They actually fight a human being, and then you can out them from a distance. So as soon as that person doesn't want the fight anymore, out, let's go, let's go, and your dog is running back to you. And so, um, you know, our idea is we want people to be able to live their lives with their dogs, but we also want your dog to be as ferocious and violent as it needs to be and to be able to end that as quickly as possible should you need 
uh, to ever use your dog. But 99% of your life is just living with your dog in your household, right? So yeah. they have to be safe and they have to be obedient stable. And, and stable. You know, the thing I've noticed about what you do that's different from what other trainers tend to teach is bite, like you said, bite and hold. But they're basically training the dog to bite. Right. What they're not training the dog to do is fight. Right. The, the term you actually should be using to describe what you do with these dogs once they get to that level is sparring. Well, you, you know, we are fighting with just like when you take martial arts. At some yep. point, you actually fight your friend. Right. Like, you well, know, you dirty shit or whatever. You there. use some safety, but you actually fight each other. Yeah. Because how like you can learn every technique, every form, every kata. You can even look badass with weapons or whatever. If you've never fought somebody, have you have you ever seen somebody, Joel, that they're actually they look good, they look good, they get in a fight, they get hit in their face, and the second they get hit in their face, you look at that person and go, that person's never been punched in the face never in their the life. Face. Their eyes and are everything goes wrong from there. Yep. And the punch they took wasn't even that bad. Yeah. It's just that they never did it before, yep. and it completely just jacks them up. And I think that's the problem with, like, again, if you're a cop and I got five other yeah. cops with me and I want yeah. this dude drug out from under a truck so we can handcuff him, then what they're training the dogs to do in general works. But and I know you also take shit because you have dogs that will target hands. And yeah. I remember the first time I had you on, one of our commenters in a live stream is like, yeah, I don't need my hands. I fight with my mind. And he was being very sarcastic and making a right. point. Like yeah. when somebody takes your hand out, you've got a problem. Yeah. And yep. if you look at a dog, you know, a 65, 75-pound Mallee or Shepherd, and they give you a full bite, your metal t- metatarsals are gone. Oh, yeah. They'll, they'll go through that like yep. like nothing. And that, well, person, if, if gone, not, that bite is right out of you. It's gone. If you're not – like when I, when I put somebody new in the suit – well, first yeah. of all, with the fighting part, so most people in the suit, in, in most bite work, they yeah. call them the decoy. And I'm like, yeah, you're a decoy. You know what a decoy does? It stands there and does nothing. Yeah. That's what a decoy does. And um, we don't use that terminology. We actually use canine sparring partner. Okay, there and you go. When you see the, the write-ups on our, our uh, social media and stuff like that, it says, dog did this with the canine sparring partner. And dog's learning to, yeah. to, you know, this kind of sparring. Like, we'll introduce a knife. Yeah. Right? And we have training knives. And the dog comes in and bites. And so initially, I just show him the weapon. See this thing? I have a thing. You better do something about it. Yeah. If they don't immediately do something, I jab them in the ribs with it. Yeah. And it hurts. And they yeah. go, holy shit, I should do something about that. Yeah. Next time they see that, and, and the thing is, dogs dogs don't know language and dogs don't understand the why behind most of what we do. They understand what, right? Like if we're going yeah. to track and I pull my long line out, they're like, we're tracking. But they yeah. don't know why we're tracking. They just know yeah. we're tracking right now. So they don't understand the difference between a cell phone and I actually yeah. got my hand smashed trying to film one of my dogs one time with my cell phone yeah. up in my hand. And she yeah. goes, something in a hand. A and she up and went, bam, and hit That's me right in the hand. I was like, good on you, girl. That was my yeah. fault. Like, I, yeah. I didn't play that right. But um, so anything in your hands can be used as a weapon. I mean, even a phone. If you have a phone yeah. in your hand, you strike somebody hammer fist yeah. with that thing. That's a lot harder than just with your hand. So, um, so clearly, what you've built into them, clearly what you've built into your genetic line is agility. I was yeah. watching one of your videos one time where you were using the training knife, and yeah. I actually think it was Punisher, Bell's dad. And yeah. when you went to like get him with the knife, he went around it and grabbed your back of your arm and then down and on your leg. And I'm like, yeah. but you know, I'm not training Bell to do that. Right. But I feel like, oh, I've seen that move before. 
Mm-hmm. It, it's it's so ingrained into them that they have this agility because they're the agility of your dogs is to be blunt it's stupid and I mean that in a good way it yeah. is a ridiculous level and they're smart as shit like I said we let her drag a leash around mm-hmm. well when she gets wound up and she doesn't want to come down she's worked out that I'm going to grab that leash uh huh and hold it and she'll up. protect the leash yep. from being grabbed, which it still works because now she's focused on something else and you get it from the other side. Yeah. But yeah, like it's like or she'll run, she'll grab the leash so it's shorter. So she's uh-huh. carrying it in her mouth, like I got the yep. leash, like you ain't gonna get the leash, you know. Yeah, um, I go, Oh, we're gonna play that game? Here's yeah. a long line. Yeah, yeah. Figure this out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I definitely we- recommend people check out what you're doing and you know, if you're not even ready for a dog yet or training or whatever. They should check out your uh, like your Instagram or or your TikTok or whatever platform they use, because yeah. even if you're not a dog person, a lot of what you're doing is more like the content that we covered today, life yeah. advice, etc. And I think that I actually part of me loves this and part of me hates this. People like you, people like me, people like John Willis, Nicole, like all of us guys, you know, we're like in our late 40s, 50s, somewhere in there. There seems to be a lot of people that follow us that we've become like father figures for or mm-hmm. mother in case of Nicole, like mother figures for They never had that strong role model in their life. Right. And so part of me doesn't like that because I feel like that sucks. Yeah. That sucks for you that you didn't have it. But the other side of it is like, well, clearly it's something that's necessary. Yeah. Somebody- clearly it's something that's needed in people's lives. So especially like you younger folks out there that listen to this podcast, if you want to like, I, if you're if you, if you don't get hit by enough two by fours every week from me, and you'd like a few more in the head, follow Joel, man. Yeah, and we try and be realistic just about general things in life in terms of you know like uh, security and protection mindset. Yeah. Um, we try and cover some of that, and then I, I've been a little off on them the last couple of weeks, but we uh, typically do each evening a uh, less than three minute. Uh, I call them motivationals, and they're little little ass kickings. Yeah, uh, about different things. Um, that kind of cover that sort of thing. So we're we're at Fortress Canine just about everywhere. Um, Facebook, I got hacked a couple years ago, so I'm, that one's a little off. It's Fortress Canine Kennels, um, but almost everywhere we're Fortress Canine, YouTube, Instagram, uh, TikTok. We're on. Uh, I actually am not on MeWe anymore because I didn't realize uploading videos actually uses up your your storage space. Yeah, and they don't give you the option to delete them. Like okay. I can't just purge it. And uh, so I was like, well, I'm, I'm not going to pay them for more space. Who, like, who's that? Because I was watching a comment here. Who does that to you? Uh, MeWe. Oh, MeWe. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I paid for the, the pro or whatever, the, yeah, the, yeah. whatever the $5 a month thing is on MeWe. Yeah. And all of a sudden one day it's like you're out of space. And I'm like, okay, well, just delete it. Like, just get yeah. rid of it. Like, let me start yeah. putting new stuff up. And uh, so on, on the other platforms, I just put it on YouTube first, and then I just share the link. And it just that's what, that's what I started doing too. Yeah, yeah, embedded. And it's a lot faster. So like, I upload to Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, and then everything else is just a link. Yeah. And yeah. um, but we're on we're on uh, X, I guess Twitter. Uh, yeah. We're on um, Freesteading, which is a kind of a, a smaller one. Uh, we're on Gab. Noster. We're on Noster, yep. So I'll open my little thing here real quick so I can run down them. So it's Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, X, Truth Social, Freesteading, Gab, LinkedIn, and Noster. And I have most of that anyway, and I'll make sure it's in the notes for the audio version, which is in the link in the video below. But as I always say, if you click that link right now, if you're watching it live, 
there won't be anything there because we're not quite done yet. But, Joel, it's been a great discussion. Uh, Thanks for being with us today. My pleasure, as always. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, man. All right, guys. Well, I really appreciate you guys hanging out with us today. I hope you guys enjoyed that discussion. Remember, one of the ways you can always help support us and the work that we do is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I do have a kitchen item for you today, and I will be fully up front and disclose why. Because uh, for for sellers, uh, for affiliate sellers on Amazon uh, that do a lot of volume, they're running a special program this month, and I'm getting paid better on kitchen items than anything else. So that's just a financial incentive. But it's a really great product. It's a product I use every day, a workhorse in my kitchen. It's the Hamilton Beach Variable Temperature electric kettle it has these automatic buttons you push it'll take the water to any of the temperatures that are preset for you and uh, obviously coffee and tea and stuff like that i mean it doesn't take a genius to figure out that's the number one use for it here's a couple more though because i don't like unitaskers one is it's almost like sous vide light so i actually make soft yolk boiled eggs in this because i can set the exact temperature i want and it has a hold temperature button you can hit so it'll hold that temperature for 30 minutes so if you don't put the temperature higher than the temperature that will get the egg to the level that you want it it doesn't matter how long it is it won't fully cook through and you get those nice soft yolks here's another one have you ever been making something that you're going to have to add a few quarts of water to and bring it up to a boil and there's other shit you have to do before you do that but the pan maybe you need to saute a base or something like that I take the kettle, I fill it up with water, I put it on boil and put it on hold temperature. And when I'm ready for the water to go in the pot to make, let's say, a soup or a soup or a sauce or to do a braising, I'm putting hot water in there and I'm instantly up to a simmer. So, like, there's a lot of things you can do with a tool like this. I've had the one that we have now for well over a year. Uh, I switched to this one when Hamilton Beach, my old Hamilton Beach, was just like a dumb one. It was just boil or not boil. It finally stopped working after, like, it was something retarded about the, the number of cycles I had done with it. It's in the write-up to tell you how many it is. But it didn't even break. What happened is the lid stopped staying closed, and I had to put a weight on it. And uh, so we gave it away to Goodwill, and uh, we switched to this one. And it's just fantastic. Uh, it's a great deal. Check it out. And remember, you can always help support us no matter what you buy if you do your online shopping starting at tspaz.com first. Also consider becoming a member, Support Brigade member if you do that. You get great discounts. The discounts pay for your membership, and uh, there's no reason not to do it then, right? You can actually make money by being a member. That's how we set that up. And it is the number one way that we pay the bills around here. So if you like the show and you want to support us, it's the number one thing you can do is become an MSB member. And then real quick before I sign off, it's time to start planning if you're going to be at TSP 23, the big workshop at my property this year. It will be November 1 to 5, I believe. But we are going to be putting tickets on sale somewhere about the middle of September, around the 14th. Uh, remember, you're going to want to be on the Telegram uh, group or the Telegram channel, either one, because when I release those tickets, I put them out there. And I kind of do that for like 20 minutes before I put them out in the general public, so to speak. And they almost never make it there. And I have a feeling this year is going to be like that again. Anyway, with that, I'll be back tomorrow with another episode. It will be a Just Jack episode. And uh, shook the piker tree with the expert council. So we uh, have a, a good expert council show set up as well. And then, then we'll start over and do it all again. Take care, guys. Catch you tomorrow. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. 
dollar down, a dollar a month, and you'll never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. 